This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Azarelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Month. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. And this is Paul Dini. And this is Brett McCreeberger. And this is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 103. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Donovan. This is Jay. And this is Commander Elisa. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. This is Stella. We are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the weeks of October 14th through November 3rd. Three weeks of comics because there was, in fact, five Wednesdays in the month of October... But that doesn't mean there's that many more books, because all we really added was a Batgirl annual from the end of the month. But, um, and we, as we mentioned in the last podcast, we eliminated some books, so Birds of Prey and, <laughs> and, and The Outlaws, um, we are not covering any longer on the podcast. Now, if you are still interested in Red Hood and The Outlaws, be sure to check out the website. Uh, we have a new writer on the website, his name is Ed, and he is writing reviews for Red Hood and the Outlaws. So you can check those out online. As far as Birds of Prey goes, if there's anybody out there interested in reviewing Birds of Prey on the website, shoot us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net and let us know and we will get you started on the website. So, um, despite the fact that we are covering three weeks worth of stuff, uh, there really was not that much news because, as we know from the last episode, the... New York Comic Con took place and news came out from there. Not very much news, but despite that, um, DC has kind of been um, not really releasing a ton of news based off of everything they announced at New York Comic Con, which, as I already said, was few and far between related to the Batman universe. But in addition to that, we also, um, the unfortunate events of Superstorm Sandy hit the East Coast, and I think mm-hmm. that also probably prevented DC from. Uh, posting more news. Now, I'm sure um, by the next time, the next podcast, we'll probably have some more news, but we have uh, just a couple of things to go over. We have a tool of seven books to cover because of the annual, um, so let's get right into comic news. The very first thing we have is on October 15th, DC Comics released the solicitations for January. And while there's not very many surprises related to this, we see a lot of the final tie-ins to um, Death of the Family um, popping up in some of the books and other books going back to their normal runs not involving uh, Death of the Family. But there are some unique covers that are still popping out uh, related to a lot of the series based off of the Death of the Family. Um, in addition to that, we also will see a Batman and Robin annual come January as well. And uh, that will be the first annual for that series. And it's kind of interesting because at this point we can tell that DC is releasing annuals specifically in months where there's five Wednesdays. And obviously January is one of those months. But the interesting fact is if they only release annuals when there's five Wednesdays, what does that mean as far as the term annual if it's not actually being released annual? Um, by the time the annual for Batman and Robin releases, the series will have 
um, a total of 16 issues out. Batgirl had an annual this month when 13 was out. We had the Batman annual come out back in May when uh, it was only issue 9. So it's kind of odd the way they're breaking this up. And I have to wonder how often they're actually going to be able to do this. Yeah, in terms of making them come out annually, it doesn't make much sense. But I think it's a good marketing choice to put them out in these five-week months because you know, then they don't have to uh, thin out the spread of the books. And you know, it's a lot of new content coming out each month, no matter what. I agree with Joe there. Um, I think it's better to, I guess, have double rather than to take the place of another book. However, and I think we'll get to this, well, maybe we won't with, with the Batgirl annual. I, I always thought of annuals as a story that really needed to be told and something that needed the extra space and was going to be something really good. And so I think I don't want them to make annuals just to make an annual, and I think it really needs to be be worth it um, to fall, I don't know, to make us buy this. You know, it needs to be worth it. And I feel like some of them are just like, let's make an annual. But it's not really, there's no rhyme or reason, and it's not a great story. So who knows? All right. So then out of the solicitations, as far as um, other DC Universe titles that are going to be featuring characters from the Batman Universe, there is actually a ton of them um, in January. Uh, I'm going to run through the list real quick. Justice League number 16, Aquaman number 16, World's Finest number 8, Superman number 16, Superboy number 16, Supergirl number 16, Swamp Thing number 16, All-Star Western number 16, Suicide Squad number 16, Young Justice number 24, the first issue of Injustice Gods Among Us, Teen Titans number 16, Talon number 4, Birds of Prey number 16, and Red Hood and the Outlaws number 16 as well. So... Lots of uh, TBU characters making the rounds in a lot of the books. Uh, Batman is clearly involved in the uh, crossover event that's happening in the Superman books, the Hell on Earth crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we'll be watching that. We won't necessarily, obviously, be reviewing that on the podcast. We'll be keeping an eye out for any events that involve the Bat family in those books as well. All right, so... Moving on to our next bit of news, on October 16th, it was announced from DC Comics that Batman number 13, Catwoman number 13, and Batgirl number 13 all sold out, and DC Comics are releasing second printings of all three issues. Um, Each issue will feature a new cover. Um, We have a picture of the uh, cover by Andy Clark, the new cover for Batman number 13, um, and you can see that on the website. As far as when these will be available, these will be available on November 14th. So just uh, be on the lookout if you are unable to pick up the first printing of these. Or if you collect comics, just be on the lookout that you're not picking up the second printings of these issues. I feel like, uh, you know, the the reason isn't because, well, they're great stories, but because they've got the whole uh, prelude to the... Um, death of the family. And it was funny because, as far as I can remember, Catwoman really didn't have as much of a connection to it, and Batgirl was right at the end of it. Um, so I, I wonder what people thought after they bought it, if they didn't peruse, you know, why did I buy this? It didn't even start anything. But that's really the reason why it sold out, in my opinion. All right, so then the next bit of news we have comes from October 17th. At New York Comic Con, Newsarama talked with Dean DeDio about a number of different subjects, but the one that caught our eye was Stephanie Brown in the New 52. 
The Dio specifically talked about why Brown and other popular characters have yet to appear. So uh, I'm going to read through his explanation. It is very lengthy, um, <laughs> but I'm going to read through it, and then we'll discuss it. Oh, yes, Bill. You know, me and Stephanie, we go way back. The story with Stephanie Brown goes, they came to me as an executive editor with the War Game story and said, we're going to kill Stephanie Brown. I knew Stephanie Brown for who she was and said, I don't know if this is going to be the big ending to your story. It doesn't feel big enough at the time because the character wasn't strong enough yet. So I said, why don't we make her Robin for a short period of time, build some interest in her, and then we kill her. Oh, Little did I know, so we did, and we wound up bringing her back, and the level of excitement wasn't there for what we thought it would be, for the amount of people we're talking about. So we went ahead and made her Batgirl, and the stories were interesting, but it never really took hold with the sales, with the expectations we had for the series. And again, I see this for every character that's missing, with the exception of Wally West. Ha ha ha. Oh gosh. No, I'm kidding. I say this for every character that's missing, even including Wally West, including Donna Troy, all of them. The reason why we didn't go out there and say every character is dead or didn't kill them off in front of people is because everyone has potential, and every character can come back if the story is right, or at the right time with the right environment. Our main goal was never to introduce everyone at the same time. We can't do that. If we do that, then we're right back where we started. That's the last thing we want. Every character should be reintroduced with story. Even to the point when Stephanie Brown came back from the dead. I'll never forget the scene. Stephanie Brown came back from the dead and she walked into a room and Batman goes, Oh, I knew she wasn't dead. I said, that didn't feel right. If this was a big deal, it should have felt bigger. If Batman knew it, that seems, then he seems negligent. Because he didn't do anything about it. And the, and the levels of that. So I really want to make sure that when we go ahead and do things like that, the teams do it that they craft it properly, and that they take advantage of every emotional beat. They build it for everything it's worth. Because when you do that, people come back more invested in the characters, not just about the conversation of them being back, but actually going to read about them after they do come back. That's the win. Not the fact that you're bringing them back, it's actually making them stay, and making people care about them more than just the people asking right now. Okay, so that's... uh his bit. Now, the first thing I'm going to say is, um, so we, we've talked about this on past, uh, past episodes as far as the sales go and how he constantly refers to the sales of, uh, Batgirl as the reason of why Stephanie Brown has disappeared from the face of the earth is because the excitement wasn't there, um, for the series like they wanted it to be. I don't, I understand DC is a business, and DC is a business that regardless of everything they say at the conventions, they're there to make money. And if they don't make money, they're not doing their jobs. And if Dan DiDio, who's the co-publisher right now, isn't publishing books that are making money, he's not doing his job. So, of course, he's not going to want to have books with low sales. But the reality is that ever since the New 52 started, there has been a number of different series that have had horrible sales. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, worse sales than, let's specifically talk about Batgirl here, Worse sales than Batgirl that have lasted a lot longer. Batwing, which has had a total of 13 issues, has worse sales than Stephanie Brown had by the end of the series. Um, this, the end of the series had a total of, I believe, 24 issues. And with having 24 issues in and having sales where it was, it's, it's pretty much, it was the industry standard at the time. Now, 
sales now have increased across the board for most series. So if the sales numbers for Stephanie were um, tweaked due to the inflation of sales that has happened with the uh, New 52, she actually would be performing um, better than 25% of the books that DC is actually publishing currently. Now, to DC, that might not be a big deal, but the reality is that um, they they dropped the ball with Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane, and they did Cassandra Kane way before Stephanie Brown because they did they dropped the ball with Cassandra Kane um, back when they rebooted the Bat books in the first place. God yes. And the 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 reality was uh, their answer back then was well the reason why Cassandra Kane's not around is because she's in Hong Kong, she's Black Bat and Batman Incorporated. Well. Okay, that that's, that was fine and dandy, but besides having a brief mention in Batman Incorporated, she really didn't appear. She uh, she popped up in uh, Red Robin when Red Robin was uh, Tim Drake's book, and she didn't have very much to do. And the thing is, it's understandable if there's if a writer has nothing to do with a the character, they're not going to use the character, and I understand that. But the problem is that clearly there was things that people specifically Brian Q. Miller, had to be able to do with Stephanie Brown that he was doing, and, you know, he wasn't given a chance to continue to do it. The fact that ever since, um, basically, the announcement that Stephanie Brown was going to be in Smallville Season 11, and then DC squashing that with Dan DiDio's giant foot, um, (laughs) it just proves that the reason why they're not bringing these characters back is because they're trying to hold the current books to a specific ideal. They have this new continuity that they want, and they don't want anything interrupting it. And by bringing Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane into the picture, it interrupts it because it presents a lot of questions that are going to be unanswered. And the problem is that, realistically, nobody at DC has an answer for any of these characters. So part of the problem is that there's nobody at DC who has the, uh, I'm going to just say it, the cojones to bring these characters into the Bat universe or even mention them. And honestly, I think it's kind of a letdown for fans because the reality is, okay, so if you're eventually going to bring these characters in, how do you explain them missing all this time? And you'll probably hear, we we discussed on the normal cast, which is releasing the same day that this is releasing, um, we discussed on the normal cast the allies of the Bat family and their current status within the DC Universe. And I talked at length about Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown and that as well. But the thing is, how do you explain um, two characters who have been pretty prominent for the last 20 years within the Bat family, such as Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane, in relation to Death of the Family, which is affecting all members of the Bat family and not address them? You can't, unless they don't exist. So by saying these characters exist, they're not dead, we just don't have, we, we're just waiting for an opportunity to bring them in. Well, now you've had one story arc back in May with Court of the Owls, which dealt with the Bat family dealing with problems in Gotham City, and now you have Death of the Family, which is also dealing with a, an event with the Bat family in Gotham City. So this, those, those are two opportunities that were there where you could have at least, by, by namesake, mentioned them and brought them in, but you chose not to which means you don't want them in the books. And Dan DiDio is saying, well, the reality is that, you know, we want to bring them in and have people really emotionally behind them. Well, that's great and dandy, but I'm not emotionally behind Batgirl. I'm not emotionally behind Talon. I'm not emotionally behind Batwing. So what was the point of bringing those characters up? 
Batgirl is understandable, but as far as Talon and Batwing go, what was the point behind that? There was no point. Talon's mm-hmm. a spin-off of the first story arc that you had from the crossover of, um, of in the Bat books, and it spawned a book. So you're telling me that you can bring a character spawned out of a uh, story arc and give it its own series, but you can't even mention Cassandra Kane or Stephanie Brown in your books? I don't think so. Well done. And I mean, there's a following right now. Like, people already, you know, are really going to... <laughs> Their hearts are in it for it right now, so I don't know why they're, like, jerking our chain. Do you think if if they were to wait longer, people are going to... Like, the longer that people wait, are they just going to, like, lose interest at some point? Or do you think it's going to make them even more uh, chomping at the bit for something? Well, for all the, the, the crap that Dan DiDio takes about these characters, about Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane and Wally West... Wally West had a mention in the Flash book. I don't follow Flash that much, but I truly noticed that there was a notice of a Daniel West, which is related to Wally West, and Francis Manipool commented on Twitter about, well, Wally West isn't something that we're forgetting about, Mm -hmm. and that's why we threw you this bone, because, you know, Wally West isn't somebody who doesn't exist. We're just going to slowly build up the Flash universe and then possibly introduce Wally West. That's not throwing a bone. That's that's dangling a carrot. Yeah. Well, even so, we're not even getting a dangling carrot with these characters. Well, my thing is that uh, I don't think it's it's. I just think that like it's a combination between them not caring and them actually thinking about what they're doing, uh, along with a lot of the stuff with the New Fifty Two just being thrown out there without much thought going into it. Uh, this whole this whole scheme of uh, Didio quoted at New York Comic Con saying it was his idea to kill off Stephanie and. Have her. Um, he's, he does say it was his idea to kill Stephanie. He says he says it was his idea to her become Robin. Um, it contra- oh, who, who who knows who to believe? But uh, Bill Willingham said back in two thousand and five uh, at Comic Book Resources that it was his idea to make Stephanie Robin because the idea to kill Stephanie was totally mandated. But Bill Willingham was writing the Robin title at the time, so if anybody. And, and Stephanie Brown was a, re- a regular supporting character, had been a regular supporting character on Robin since pretty much the beginning of the title. So for over 10 years. So if anybody's going to, you know, have more insight into what the character's future would be, it would probably should be Willingham. Dan Dio is a guy who cherry picks which characters he wants and does not want in the title. I mean, he came back, he came to the DC saying that he wanted to bring back Kyle Jordan and Barry Allen back to life. He, um, you know, he wanted to kill Nightwing and that, that got, that, that got shelved. <laughs> He's, a lot of these characters are, are kind of being shoved around back to a preferable state that he and other writers prefer and most fans don't really care for. So this is in the, this whole lie of, you know, we're waiting for a story to tell with them. It's just, don't, don't, don't lie to us, you know. It's one thing to say, like, you know, I'm not, I don't have a story to tell for Cassandra Kane. And then Grant Morrison comes and says, well, she's in Hong Kong and she's Black Bat now. That's one thing. I understand that. But to like, have somebody go in and, and Dustin Wynn's uh, digital comic and, like, you know, change the coloring of somebody who's dressed as Stephanie Brown Batgirl for Halloween. That's a whole different thing. You're actively trying to prevent people from recognizing this character in the New 52, and it's ridiculous. Like, why why are you preventing these characters from existing? Why are, why are you not saying, you know, Barbara was paralyzed for three years, but let's not mention any other Batgirls, you know, even though the Robins have been around for two years at a time. Like, why are you leaving all these glaring holes where these characters could easily be inserted in, and yet you are actively preventing their insertion? I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, just just say that you don't want to use them. You know, don't 
don't don't BS the fans. Don't come out with this whole. I mean, I think Wally West is a different story because Wally West is a lot more iconic than Stefan Cast, to be honest, and Frank. And I think that like they would be facetious just to completely forget him. But the Batgirls, there's some sick thing going on where like I don't know why, but like, and I understand that they're not the most popular characters in like all of comics, but in terms of DC in the last ten years, they've really fully. If you look at the fan base for Batman, they they really fully round out the the Bat Family fan base. And you're preventing them for us. I think the only other reason I can think of is the fact that they were created in the 90s. Because other, otherwise, you have all these legacy characters, you know, kind of shoehorned in, into roles they're not meant to be in, like Babs, Babs Gordon as Batgirl. And then you have these characters that are just, they're just gone, which they can easily just be hanging around or at least acknowledged. Why are you denying Grant Morrison and Scott Snyder, your golden boys at DC to work with these characters? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. You just say you either don't want to use them, or you put them in there because it doesn't hurt your your comics. I really I really don't understand it. Uh, well, I was all ready to defend it and say, you know, I kind of buy this, but from the emotional responses of you guys. No, no, speaking up. We're not, we're not going to hurt you. I, I know, but no, I mean, like, you've kind of convinced me otherwise. I mean, uh, like, I know he says it all the time. I know he says it all the time about how they're waiting for the right story. And from the speech he gave in the, in that, interview article thing uh it kind of had me believing that that's that genuinely was the case and you know like there might not be room for her and they, you can't just force her out anywhere but then you know like i mean you could there's always room for like a backup or something like that or just you know showing up she doesn't need to have if she's not strong enough to have uh, her own series then she can show up in you know, just as a, a sideline character, every now and then just pop up, just like Tim does in. Just say like that she's a spoiler. I mean, the again the, the the complete history of the Dark Knight, which is incorrect, but it says that she went back to being spoiler. Just say that she did that. I mean, how much continuity does, does that ruin? I mean, the biggest thing it just comes down to this: if Dan DiDio is specifically saying that there's that that he's super concerned because there's not enough fan support as far as sales goes. Then, okay, so that explains why you don't have a series based off the character, but that doesn't explain why you have, you don't mention the character. There's no reason, like, if Scott Snyder threw the name Stephanie Brown or Cassandra Cain into one of his titles, is it going to affect the sales of the book? No. It's not going to affect the sales of the book at all. So why would it even make a difference? Like, that, like, there, regardless of what Dan DiDio is saying, I'm convinced that there is an editorial mandate or maybe a publisher mandate from Dan DiDio saying, do not use these characters. Did, Go- did Gates of Gotham just tank because Cassandra Cain was front and center in that story? I highly doubt it. Yeah, and I, I don't think it... I, that series didn't do bad at all. Mm-hmm. That was mostly because Scott Snyder's name was on the cover. <laughs> Even though he didn't write it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alright, so the only other news we have is on October 30th, DC announced that um, for the holiday season, um, starting with Halloween, a uh, Dustin Wen Digital First series will be releasing, featuring his Little Gotham that I have been a proud person of supporting since uh, back in, I think it was 2009 when the first uh, Little Gotham stuff popped up. Um, in one of the annuals. Um, now there is going to be a number of digital comics that are released. The first one was already released on Halloween. 
There's one set to come out for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Obviously, I'm sure if it's successful, it will continue, and we'll see some for um, not only uh, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, Easter. I mean, the holidays, there's almost a holiday every single month that they could use. So realistically, um, I'm glad that this is happening. Digital first means it will eventually come out in print, and I will definitely buy it in print when it comes out. Mm -hmm. But as far as digital goes, I read the uh, first one. I thought it was great. It's definitely out of continuity, but it features all of Dustin Wen's really cool characters um, in the, the little forms that uh, we've seen in the past. So I suggest that you check it out and then be on the lookout for the upcoming digital issues as well. Uh, yeah, I was definitely excited when I saw this announcement. Um, it reminds me a bit of the Tiny Titans and now the Superman Family Adventures, except it's a Batman-specific. Um, I don't think it's quite as... I don't think he delves into quite as much continuity as that, but I like the fact that it's out of continuity and it's just... It's really fun, and I think that's what Batman needs at times. So I'm really enjoying this. I was, I, I had it, and uh, it's great, and I hope that they continue to come out with it and not mess with it. Uh, I definitely, I, I love them. They're so cute, and I have one of the the prints of sort of the whole Batman family crew with the villains um, that I got from San Diego 2011, you know, hanging in my room. And it's just wonderful also because he can have fun with it. Like, because for the most part, DC really seems to be into, hey, look, we got to make everything dark and brooding. And so it's like, finally, we can have like a fresh, a, a breath of fresh air and have something that's fun and lighthearted. And, um, you know, from the teaser image, it, it looks like, Babs is Oracle and Cass is in there and Steph. Who knows if that's still going to happen? But uh, one can can dream at least. And it's just great to see something that's fun. And I always love the holiday tales. I was sort of bummed that they didn't really, that um, DC didn't really put out a Halloween one. But I think this certainly made up for it. All right. So that is all of the news. Our very first book we're going to be covering is Talon number one. You can listen. Talon number one. The Gotham Trap. Plot by Scott Snyder and James Tinian IV. Written by James Tinian IV. Art and cover by Guillaume, Guillaume March. Colored by Tomu Mori. And lettered by Sal Cipriano. Calvin Rose narrates the first time the court led him into the Metropolitan Terminal, the abandoned train station on the edge of Gotham. Apparently, the court used it in the late 1800s in order to control those who would come to and leave their city. Late Alan Wayne's, uh, later, Alan Wayne's Union Station would make the Metropolitan obsolete. The court told Calvin that their power was Gotham. They had built the city into a trap so that no one could ever escape. Of course, this means something differently for Calvin. He never thought he would be able to set foot in Gotham again, but since hearing the reports of the Night of the Owls, he had to know whether they were truly all gone. He makes his way to their headquarters and sees it abandoned. Of course, it is not. He is going to slip into their central computer terminal and see for sure that all network activity has ceased so that he can breathe easily. He is scanned by a system, and a grizzled old man, looking like Bruce Wayne from Batman Beyond, is notified of his entrance. Then a talent pops up inside the headquarters and tries to kill him. While he is outmatched, he does end up outsmarting the talent by getting a noose around her neck, which will tighten if she tries to get out. 
He slips down a, sh- uh, a chimney chute that leads back to the Metropolitan. When the town falls after him, oh, isn't that jogging? The fight continues, even with the dagger in the town's head. Calvin then uses a handheld cattle prod to light up the metal of the knife. So we're hoping the town is down and out. But then the old man miraculously appears and puts liquid nitrogen in the town's head wound. So hopefully now she really is down and out. The man mends Calvin back at his headquarters. But once Calvin wakes up, he tries to escape. The old man outthinks Calvin and gets him to come down from the ventilation shaft. The man then explains that when he was young, he too lost everything to the court. His name is Sebastian Clark. And together he and Calvin will wipe the court of owls from the face of the earth. His father apparently wrote the secret history of the owls. But no Gotham publisher would touch it, but apparently he got it published anyway. The court then uh, killed anyone who even heard of it, but Sebastian somehow slipped through their grasp. He planned his revenge, and when he returned to Gotham, he set up security software and sold it to a descendant mentioned in the book, knowing one of them would lead him to what he wanted. He knows more about the talents in the court than anyone, and right now they are still out there healing. 30 out of 46 have of the resurrected talents have been locked in Blackgate. So there's still 16 left, my math majors. He plans on eliminating the court's resources and neutralizing their talents. He asks Calvin to aid him in this. Calvin refuses, and Sebastian says that they have already located Casey Washington and will probably kill her and her daughter, as they originally planned in town number zero. So this convinces Sebastian. Uh, this convinces Calvin, Sebastian has also made improvements to his talent suit. And so after this convincing set of arguments, he is finally able to get Calvin to join his fight. Next, the war on the court begins. So my first uh, topic is this uh, Sebastian-Calvin team-up. Uh, what you see, do you see it as being worthwhile? What What do you think about the future of it? Uh, because right now, um, you know, I was just thinking about all these bat books that we've got sort of a duo going on, uh, kind of a handler. You know, you've got Batman and sometimes James Gordon. You've got Batman and Alfred. In Batwing, you've got Batwing and Matu. Um, Batgirl doesn't really have anyone unless you count Detective McKenna. Catwoman kind of has... Um, her, her BFFL. Uh, but now we've got Sebastian and Calvin, and it, it very much feels like a Batman Beyond thing because of how, how much older Calvin is. But do you think this is a worthwhile team-up? Or, yeah, how do you see it progressing in the future? The, uh, the issue I see with this is this guy is basically going to become the benefactor of Calvin and slash his Alfred. Um, because essentially what I feel is if what, what is occurring is Calvin does not have the resources to fight the Talons by the, or fight the Court of Owls by himself. So he needs source, some sort of benefactor. Um, he's obviously not going to try to link on to Batman. So this is the logical choice for them to have some other person who also wants to defeat the Court of Owls. The problem is that this seems extremely familiar as far as the overall story where we have somebody who doesn't like somebody, somebody else who doesn't like somebody, and they basically team up with each other mm-hmm. and to take down the bad guy. I mean, it's it's not a very uncommon thing, so it's not like it's very original. Um, I don't think it's a bad combination 
But, I mean, I don't know how long this is going to last because, essentially, aren't we seeing almost the same thing in Batwing mm-hmm. where Batwing is getting his gear from Batman, Batman is his so-called, you know, his mentor and is telling him what to do, and Batwing is then doing it. That seems like it's going to be the same thing here, only with different characters. So, I mean, honestly, I don't think it's a... It's a bad team. I just think that the this the story, the the overall plot is 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 very similar to things we're already seeing in other books right now. Right. Um, I thought that I was a little um a little bit disappointed that I, that this is going to be like this at least for at least up to this issue the status quo of the book because I was uh, the interest in Talon for me was the idea of this guy on his own. Fighting the, the Court of Owls. I mean, we saw what a force they were in the Batman books with, when all the Bat members fought them and how tough they were against Batman. So the idea of, you know, a former Owl taking them on by himself is presented a real challenge. Having somebody coach him in a very Batman Beyond, Bruce and Terry kind of way, um, it's certainly an idea, but I think that, like, it's a too... I'm not sure if it's... I'm not going to say it's not right for the book because obviously the book just started, but I'm not sure if that's the best way to go. I kind of disagree with the idea to do this. Um, and again, we, we have, we have comparisons. Like we have like Oracle and Batgirl. We had, uh, Ma- we have Matu and Batwing. We have, we have a lot of these kind of things, but I think that like, I'm not sure. I was, I was a lot more invested in the idea of, excuse me, Calvin Rose completely on his own. Yeah. Rather than, um, him and, some old guy we're just meeting for the first time. I'm not saying it's a horrible idea, but I, was, I wasn't really, I wasn't really jonesing for it. Yeah, I guess I agree with um, Dustin in that. I think it's probably beneficial for the character, but other than that, it's it'd be. I think it's sort of an easy way out. I think there are more intelligent ways that you could have started off the status quo. And uh, I mean, it's gonna be. I guess we'll see how it goes. Uh, Jameson, you might turn it around, but um, yeah, I think this is more of a the easiest way to do something, and that's why they've done it. Uh, yeah, and I, I lean more towards Donovan, just that this guy really seemed, and, and that's how it was really solicited, is that this guy is like running for his life. He he was the one person able to slip through the talons grasp. And here already we sort of make that a moot point because, hey, we just found an old guy that was also able to slip through the talons grasp. Um, and it just seems more compelling to have this guy just sort of like running, you know, from his life and, and trying to take down the talons on his own rather than, kind of having an, an easier way out. So I, you know, I, I like the sort of tie to Batman Beyond, just that feel, because he did sort of remind me of a, a grizzled Bruce Wayne. Um, but, you know, the character Calvin Rose for me felt more interesting as as a loner. And so my, my second and final discussion point, um, you know, if you had watched Smallville, uh, you know, in the beginning, people, I think at a certain point, they started getting sort of sick and tired of the freak of the week. And that's just, the, you know, for, I guess, really the first three seasons and maybe a little further. Basically, each episode would have someone uh, getting, you know, kryptonite poisoning and then turning in uh, to some, like, bad person, basically, with, with a different sort of power. And so this was like the freak of the week. And I I sort of feel like that's the way that this story is going to go because we've got 16 talents to get rid of. This is what 
you know, Sebastian wants to do is get rid of each of them. So what do you think the future of this, you know, series is? What do you see it doing? Because right now I'm fearful that each issue we're going to just take on a new talent and take them down. It's just going to be like way going after vampires. And I don't know if that's as compelling as uh, number zero was initially for me. So what do you think? My thing is, I was really hoping that, okay, so I guess I originally thought that Talon was not going to be stuck in Gotham trying to defeat the Corvallis, and I'm sure that's not going to be the case because we've seen some of the solicitations for future issues, and he's not necessarily in Gotham for every issue. But the the reality is the, the, the series was toted as this is a series where Calvin Rose is on the run from the Court of Owls, not he's trying to get the Court of Owls. There's a big difference between running from the Court of Owls and trying to get them. Now, I'm not saying that uh, running from the Court of Owls would be as interesting as him trying to take down the Court of Owls, but like you, like Stella said, if it's going to be, you know, he's, he's going to be fighting a different talent every single one, every single issue, that's going to get old real fast because the talons all have the same powers. It's not like Talon is going to be fighting uh, a different supervillain or a different villain every single issue. He's fighting essentially the same person with maybe a slightly different weapon. Right. And that could get really annoying really quick. Um, the, the aspect that I do enjoy about what's happening and what was told in this is that we are learning more about the Court of Owls that, you know, f- f- more of the behind-the-scenes type of things from the Court of Owls because that really wasn't discussed in Batman as much as um, it could have been because they were telling the story that they needed to tell and there was no reason to tell more and elaborate more on the Court of Owls. The, the thing is, I don't really, I don't know, I, I feel as if, especially with, the Talon showing up in the, the, the Court of Owls and the Talon showing up in the Batgirl Annual and the future promise of Talon going to the Birds of Prey, I have a real hard time imagining um, the after effects of this Court of the Owls story, and I'm starting to think that they could be overplaying it because um, it was so successful. And it reminds me a lot of some of the uh, different things that have been done in the past with for example, Batman Incorporated was created and Grant Morrison was doing that. And at the time, Grant Morrison was the lead Batman writer. So what happens? We get this spawn book of Batman Incorporated Batwing, which has not really been very good, in my opinion, overall. And I'm afraid that could happen with this because, you know, it's, you know, the reason why story arcs are really good and get as much praise as they are because it's a story arc. It has, it has an ending. That's not to say you can't bring up story elements, but to continue the storyline of a story arc that ended so soon and to turn it into an actual series that is just going to keep going for as long as the series lasts, that just seems like they're trying to play up the the Court of Owls overall for way too long. That was more, sort of my problem with, this, with the idea of this series, is that, like, we... It was basically the entire first year of the New 52 we were dealing with the Court of Owls. And it was a good story, but I think by the time it ended, we really were done with it. And when they announced that they were going to come out with talent, an ongoing, we just had a review about the Court of Owls. I was like, you know what? This really isn't. I think really right now they're kind of like gilding the lily or 
kind of like milking this for all it's worth. And I think that by now there's not a lot of milk left. I'm not saying that it can't be a good book, but I'm saying that like this might have been the wrong book for the wrong time. Uh, I, th- to me, the idea of, of that they were saying across that, you know, he would it was the court of battles would play a part in every issue. And even if he does end up just fighting crime and you know stopping bank robbers, and he has his own supervillains and like this, they'll introduce his character and like, he's the Talon's Joker. I don't really care because it's still like the, the the idea of the Court of Owls. And while it's a good story, I mean, at least to me, it was never really like a classic story. I think that like it was a, a bit too. It was kind of like trying to trying to cr- trying to chase that kind of sort of classic element for a Batman story, and that like. It was so good, but I don't think, I think that it's a little, I might say it's a bit overrated to the point where like this kind of represents the hype that the Court of Owls had. And I'm not sure if this can follow along that sort of, like, I, I'm not sure if they can, this can ride that much goodwill, this series. This is why, I mean, really, I don't think James Tang is a bad writer at all. I, I think this, these are, these issues are fine, but I think they're, they're going for a certain level of, quality that I'm not sure the readers or its own story will allow it. Alright, so talent number one I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I'll give this issue three and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this issue more than I was expecting to. I think this series is actually taking me by surprise, but um, it's still not the best series out there, so I'll also give it three out of five batterings. And also, you know, I guess I'm also sort of one of those people that I, I try to hold out for the little guy. You know, I'm still holding on for, for Batwing. And this one does have promise. I, I hope that it doesn't um, fall into these holes that we were sort of talking about here. Uh, but I did like this issue the best out of all the issues this month. So four out of five batterings. All right. So that is going to give Talon number one, a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Batman Incorporated, number four. I want information, and I'll get it any way I please. Batman Inc., number four, written by Grant Morrison with art by Chris Burnham. The issue opens with Talia declaring that she wants to destroy Batman by taking away everything that he loves, just as he took away her son. We then jump to where the last issue left off, with Batman being strangled to death in his matches Malone guys. Batman drops a lit match onto the trail of gunpowder, which he was leaving as he entered the building. And as a man trying to fit, fit a noose around Batman's neck wants to stamp out the trail, Batman breaks free and the door explodes. Outside, El Gaucho and The Hood are taking out the assassins, and they continue fighting their way inside where they see Wingman, as well as Damien slash Redbird. Wingman immediately recognizes Damien, and the two enter the room where Bruce is. Bruce is angry at Damien for disobeying orders, but focuses on the plan they have set out. He calls for Phase 2, where Knight, Red Robin, and Nightwing join the fight, and Squire cuts out the lights for the house. On the roof, Batwing is on the lookout for Talia's man-bat henchmen, but as a flock of them approach, Batwing takes them all out with an ultrasonic wave. We cut to, Ghost- we cut to Goat Boy with a gun to Lumina Lux's head, saying that if he kills her, he will become a member of the League of Assassins but she stabs him in the neck with a fork. Batman decides to look the other way because she was blackmailed, and he also gives her the medication, as it was she who had multiple sclerosis, not her sister. Batman shouts to Talia to call off the war after Batman Inc. defeated the League of Assassins, but she refuses to talk, at least until Wingman reveals his true identity to Damien. With this, we see Wingman removing his mask and revealing himself to be none other than Jason Todd. <laughs> 
Damien is extremely upset with this. After all, Jason Todd is a murderer who has brought shame onto the Bat family. But Batman turns to Damien and says that as much as he wishes it could be any other way, Damien must return to Talia or the world will be plunged into chaos. So first of all, I would like to congratulate myself for calling <laughs> this reveal months and years ago, probably. And yeah, you all disparaged it. Apart from you, Stella, you're forgiven because you weren't there. Yay! But, uh, We're still friends! <laughs> yeah, we do. I was wondering how you feel about the reveal of Jason Todd, and is it more or less effective since the new continuity? Because I feel that in the old continuity it works because, you know, when we saw Batman talking to Wingman, he was saying how you know, it's your chance to redeem yourself. If you do this for me, you know, you'll be fighting for Batman Inc. And that you know, that would have been a cool reveal. But in the new continuity, we see um, Jason sort of being more accepting of Batman, I guess. So it might have been less of a shock. But then he's also kind of his own person in Red Hood. So I was wondering what you guys thought about that. So my, my thought was this. So I, I figured out it was going to be Jason Todd before I actually read the issue. Uh, it was the day before when I read the preview. Don texted me and said, big reveal, uh, who Wingman is. And I texted him back, it's Jason Todd, isn't it? And he said, yes, how did you know? <laughs> so essentially I figured it out based off of a couple of different comments that uh, Damien made in the preview that was shown for Batman Incorporated. And it made sense then, and then obviously it was right. But I definitely have to give props to Joe for figuring that out way ahead of time, and we all calling him crazy. Well, here's my thing. Because I, I, I had no clue. I thought I was going for Broken saying that it was Jean-Paul Valley or somebody. So when I read the issue at my comic shop, and it was like, Soccer Bless, Jason Todd. I was like, ooh. And I texted Dustin. And um, and I said, like, like uh, you know, oh, oh, like he said, you know, oh, Wingman's uh, revealing. He's like, yes, yeah, Jason Todd, I know. And I'm like, wow, you really are Batman. And then so apparently... <laughs> When we were scheduling this episode, Joe said, yeah, I figured it out, too. So I'm like, and so I'm like, Damien, what is it my know that I don't know? Because I had no, I really had no idea. And um, to answer the question, I really like it because one of my biggest, biggest problems since Jason Todd's come back, since uh, the Under the Red Hood storyline, story is that, like, there's not been a conversation between him and Batman. He's just basically been running around doing what he wants, and Batman's just been, I mean, before the before the fifty two, there was there was a, an honest explanation for it because there was countdown, and then there was R.I.P. Then Battle for the Cowl, Batman wasn't there. Batman was actually absent during most of it, and they had that one scene, Arkham Asylum, uh, in the Batman Robin title. But uh, since New Fifty Two, Jason's running around with a bat symbol on his costume, killing people with guns, and Batman's just like scratching his nose or something. I I, I really despise that because it does it just does not. Because I, I I grew up reading the story Batman when Jason was dead and Batman could not get over it. Like that was one of his biggest that was his biggest failure. So for Jason to come back and basically be a, a vigilante, I really hated the fact that Batman wasn't doing anything about it. So for him to ha- sort of redeem himself here and him and Batman have being in on a secret that Damien did not know, I thought that was perfect. It was a great characterization and I really liked I really liked I love the dynamic between De- Damien and Batman in this uh, possibly more than in Batman and Robin because 
This Batman Rom is a very angry book a lot of times. It's a very good book, but I think that this one ha- plays a lot more dimensions and a lot more aspects of their personalities and their emotions. And I buy it. And because Morrison's been telling the same story since 2006, I buy it a lot more readily. And I, I thought that the Jason Todd reveal, it, I thought it was really cool. So I, I, I really love that part. It's my favorite part of the book. As far as what I think, as far as the, the reveal goes, the the thing in my mind was we've seen in numerous, this is probably going to be contrary to what Joe said earlier as far as Jason's been more accepting of Batman because I think in some uh, some cases, especially recently in uh, in the Batman and Robin series and during Red Hood and the Outlaws a couple months back, as well as the uh, the Court of Owls crossover, we see Jason Todd, you know, helping Batman out, but he's still making these snark remarks about how he doesn't really want to help Batman. And the thing is, it does come across as some sort of, you know, as a reveal of some sort because that has been, because Jason Todd's uh, personality has been not the same as what we see in Batman Incorporated. I think it's cool that Jason Todd is trying to redeem himself in Batman's eyes by doing this and being part of Batman Incorporated. And it makes sense. And I wish that some of the other books would play a little bit more into this. And maybe they will as time goes on. But I think. Red Hood and the Outlaws has done not so great of a job of portraying what they're trying to portray here in Batman Incorporated. But as far as what they've done in Batman Incorporated, especially with this reveal, I think they did it really, really well. And I think it made sense. And I was just waiting for Damien to say something about he wanted to, you know, he wanted to go, he wanted to face off against Jason or something like that. It didn't have as great an impact on me. And it was funny. I think either while when I read this or slightly before I, uh, I I recently read Batman Hush for the first time and I think even though I know that you know Jason comes back that that was more of, of a very scary reveal when you know he pulled off the mask at that point and this one didn't have an impact on me um, for two reasons number one exactly because you know with the current continuity Jason's already running around and number two since I hadn't been reading this, book beforehand and i was like who are these people anyways (laughs) but uh uh, yeah i was more shocked sort of by what else was going on during that scene than the actual reveal Uh, well i I think it was definitely a cool reveal even if i sort of saw it coming it was great to have my suspicions realized and then the next thing that i'd like to discuss is where do you think the series is going because now that batman's essentially beating the League of Assassins. I mean, there might be more, but that that you could think that that was going to happen maybe later on, and then with the next issue being an issue set in the future with Damien, I, I know it's, it's showing sort of what would happen if Damien stayed with Batman, but with that being an almost one-shot, do you think that the series is going to lose direction? Because if it's going to be a series of one-shots, it might end up being what mm-hmm. the the last series ended up doing with the the internet issue and things like that or do you think that it's going to stick to an, an overarching storyline I think the I think the reason why they're doing this next issue with uh, Damien in the future as Batman is because they're tr- because like you said they're trying to show what Damien Damien's future could be because of the choices that have been made and then Basically, six will pick up with probably him returning to Talia, and 
basically we see what could have happened if you know he goes back to Talion and what he could become if it's the other way. I don't I don't think it'll actually be a series of one shots. I think this is really just one issue where they're going to use because knowing that Grant Morrison is going to be leaving Batman comics and comics in general uh, in the near future, we have to believe that this is like one of his. Well, Batman Incorporated is pretty much his swan song for the Batman universe, and he's trying to, I think, go back to some of the things that people really liked. I really enjoyed the uh, Batman 666, where Damien goes to, uh, where we see Damien as Batman in the future, and what the future could hold for Gotham City, and, you know, what could actually occur if Damien was Batman, and things like that. And I think the I think what Grant Morrison is doing is he's bringing that back because what's the chances of anybody else doing that anytime in the near future? And I think he's maybe trying to, you know, create a little bit more of what could be um, inside of this future that he has created so that there's more there than just that, you know, one issue and then the this few bits that we saw in the annuals a couple years back. So I think the, um, or not the annuals, uh, this, I think it was 700, the 700th issue, there was some throwbacks to that. But I think ultimately it just comes down to we're, we're most likely going to see Damien go back to Talia and it's going to be like this trick that Batman's using to get Talia to lose. It's most likely probably that. It's not portrayed very well in this issue, but it's almost coming across as all right, listen, this is what has to happen. I hate to tell you this, but uh, you got to do this, and now you got to go, so here's a plane ticket, fly it back to the island. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's being portrayed as that, but I don't think that's really the case, and that might just because, be because they're trying to do another big reveal, which is kind of a downside because they're setting themselves up so they can have a big reveal, and I don't, I don't necessarily like that, but... I think uh, I think it's going to head in the direction that, you know, basically they're going to somehow s- fix this Talia situation so that it can't come up anymore, and it could end up being that Talia ends up getting killed somehow, and that's the only way they don't have to worry about Talia popping back up. But I don't know if they would actually go to that measure. Sure, they would. Um, I think that either she'll die or Damien will die. I remember Morrison saying that he initially had the Batman and Son storyline end with Damien dying, but either the fans had fun hating him or he liked him enough that he changed it, and now he's been Robin since, um, more or less. I, I, I think you see this is why I think I think Morrison since had the single-minded story since the very beginning. His very very first story arc when he, when he first became the writer of Bat the Batman title back when things were normal, uh, he introduced Damien and he was telling the story that ended with Batman R.I.P. And then everything changed forever with Batman and Robin. There was Batman Inc. And then, like, the New 52, and Batman Inc. started over again. But I think throughout this entire thing, he's had a very... I don't know if I want to say he's planned it since the beginning. I don't think he has. But, like, he's been telling this story about Damian Wayne, which is his sort of magnum opus on the Batman character and exploring these different aspects of him and giving him a, a real true family unit, which Batman has to be responsible for. I think that, like, this is a story we're paying attention because it's, it's, it's never been done before, and it's very, very personal. I think it's very epic and grand in the sense that, like, wh- however this is going to end, it's, it's going to be. It's, I think it's going to end very, very uh, intensely. Um, I think that, like, 
I, I think that he's going to end the series when, when he ends uh, this run. And it's going to be in a way that, like, you can't, like, put the genies back in the bottle. Or maybe I'm getting that reversed. But uh, I think I think Damien's either, it's, Damien's obviously going to have some, some important thing to do with that. Either he dies or maybe he kills Talia. Or she kills him. Or Batman kills both of them and pretends he never, he never met them. I don't know. Uh, I think just I just I'm I'm interested to see what's happening, but obviously Damien and Talia have something to do with it, and I think one of them might die. That might be kind of an easy way out, but because of the stakes and because of like the high risk games they're playing, I think that's the only way it can go. Um, I don't. That ending just sort of threw me off. Um, you know, I I can definitely once Dustin, you know, sort of uh, put those thoughts together, I, I I can definitely see something like that working. But it just seems so abrupt, you know, all of this is going on and then all of a sudden, I'm sorry, you need to, you're respon- you're going to be responsible for this if this happens and you need to leave. And it just seems like, you know, the way everything has, has really been pushing forward in Batman and Robin and their, their relationship and how well it's been growing, that this is just like a betrayal of the utmost. Uh, just to have Batman turn around and say, son, you need to go, even for whatever reason. Like, I feel like it, it needed to, I don't know. I guess we'll see what the next issue does, but it, it just seemed really off for me. All right, so Batman Incorporated, number four, I'm going to give four out of five Batarangs. I will, too, give it four out of five Batarangs. It has long been established that this is my favorite book, and this issue definitely didn't disappoint, so I'll be giving it five out of five batterings. Uh, I found it slightly confusing, um, and, you know, I would have liked to have seen how the Ink members sort of assembled, because we go from last issue um, in the thick of things, and then all of a sudden they're already there, and, and I thought that there was, like, what happened in between. And I do suggest for anyone that did not read Volume 1, uh, that you probably should read Volume 1 if you want to get the characters down, because right now they all are just like, I recognize them, but I have no idea what names are which. So that is my suggestion for newer readers of this title. Uh, but 3.5 out of 5 Batarangs. Alright, so that is going to give Batman Incorporated number 4 a total of 4 out of 5 Batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight number 13. He's here. Oh, the Batman. The Dark Knight, number 13, written by Greg Horowitz, illustrated by David Finch. This issue begins with the Scarecrow <laughs> dripping the tears of your little girl for his science. And um, as she's begging to be let out of the room, she says, Here, Mr. Kidnapper, I drew you this. It's a picture of you and me holding hands under the sunset. So, so this this makes Scarecrow go into some sort of psychotic episode. Um, come back to the Batman, who's still shirtless and uh, changed to a wooden table. He says, "Activate wrist armor laser." What you didn't know I had that, and um, somehow that works. And he puts his costume back on, but is slashed by the Scarecrow by his scythe, and apparently looks like he's dying. But actually, it turns <laughs> out to be a, a psychotic hallucination, where Scarecrow says, "You didn't go anywhere at all." But uh, I have a new toy. you will be the first to use it. That's why for today's performance, I'll be equipped somewhat differently. And he sprays him with some sort of aerosol gas, which that might be redundant. Superman um, toxin. Hey, he sprays him with Superman toxin. Sam <laughs> <Sarah> Rollins <laughs> has that. Uh, so he tells him the story about Braxton Winthrop, a man who is rich and about 
Bruce Wayne's size and height and weight. And uh, he tells him all about his his uh, great life and how he had lo- loved his parents and donated his money to charity. And I guess his parents eventually died in a plane crash. The end. Well, this apparently has to connect with Batman, and this is all in his head still. Where he says, "Well, you could have had a family, but no, you choose the darkness. You could have, you ran towards the darkness. You could have gotten married, but you'd rather have girlfriends. You have a war, but you could have always adopted them into your son." What's wrong with you, Batman? Why are you always about the darkness? And um, he says, this will this will react negatively. You think people will all crowd your funeral? No, you'll end the you'll die in a ditch, and no one will you know care about you. So um, Batman's freaking out and says, "What what happened to you to make you like this?" And we see as a child the scarecrow and his wacky father. Uh, the, his father locked him in, into like the basement for several days on end, and apparently just just up and dies from a heart attack. So. Jonathan Crane, as, as a little boy, is stuck down there with a bunch of skeletons for several days on end until the, the cops found him. Um, so the scarecrow says, I'll be right back. I need to get my scythe to kill you. Batman says, again, activate wrist armor laser. And it doesn't work. So the scarecrow gains his, gets his scythe, but Batman summons his Batman strength to, to break the chains and put his costume back on and says, you should, you should not have left me in the same room with my suit. Next, terror fights. So that was Batman, The Dark Knight, number 13, Batman vs. the Scarecrow, still. And um, I'll get into my thoughts of the issue a little bit later, but what did you guys think was the point? And by that, I mean that, like, I, we saw some more hallucinations and, and storytelling with Daddy Crane and Little Johnny. Uh, we saw some visions and some gruesome images, but do you think there was, like, an actual... To me, I thought this was kind of padded and didn't really... There wasn't much that really happened. Do you guys think that there was a point that was made in this issue, and if so, how effective do you think that point was made? I think there was definitely a point, and I think it was a Scarecrow origin story for the new 52 told via Batman. Uh, I would agree. I think that's that's kind of what I thought about it, too. Uh, I thought that the, the idea was that they were trying to show, and they've kind of, they kind of hinted at this back in uh, the, what was it, uh, 12... They kind of talked about this as well. The fact that he was experimented on and used as a guinea pig by his father for his father's test. And they've hinted at it, but then they really you know, brought it to heart more so in this issue. And I think that really was the point. Um, there was some clear problems that I'll hold, talk about a little later about this issue, especially specifically relating to some of the art. But... Um, um, as far as the point, I think the point was the origin story. Yeah, as for how effective it was, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I really want to like Greg Horowitz. I, I really enjoyed his Penguin, Brain and Prejudice one, but for some reason the series just isn't really doing it for me. And unfortunately this issue continued that trend. Um, I mean, it's by no means bad, it's just... I I feel that what you were saying about it kind of being padded, it I think that's right. Uh, unfortunately, I just feel that uh, similar to what he did with Penguin, I guess it can be told in fewer issues, and it's, I just find it odd that he has to write this origin story for the villain. And I know he's trying to make it all dark and psychotic and stuff, but I, I don't necessarily feel that. I mean, if 
if there was a place for it, it would be in this series, but I don't think there's a need for it. You know, for the past several issues, we've really been delving into the origin of um, of Jonathan Crane. That's his name, right? It's not Ichabod, is it? It's Jonathan. Yes. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I just, okay. Um, and I think we've really seen his origin more in the past issues than this one, because really this was more of a reduplication of what we had seen before, just that he had been sort of uh, tortured by his father, you know, for, for scientific reasons. But I think it also gets to Batman's fears. And I think this actually ties in really well with um, the Noel discussion that we had. Just that, you know, all these fears that Batman has and and these questions of, is he doing the right thing? Is this the way his his path, his life should be leaving, leading? And I think it's it, it really gets... Um, to the readers that Batman is more than just this super heroic identity, but he is human as well. And he has sort of these, these, um, deep set issues and, and doubts and everything. And I think so more than explaining or, or delving into the history or the, the future, I guess, of Crane, it's also about, you know, Batman and looking inside of him as well. I guess that a point would be made to illustrate the uh, Scarecrow's origin for the new 52. That's a year old. Um, I think that, like, I'm not going to say this is bad, because I really don't think it was. But, like, I don't know. I mean, it's an origin, but, like, I, I, I'm not sure. So, you know, he was traumatized as a kid, so that he's basically the doll maker or the dollhouse or, yeah. you know, the family dolls and, and that. that permeate this, these comics. Like, he's, his dad was an effed up person, and Scarecrow became the same kind of person. And I don't know how much of an origin that is. I mean, do we know why his dad was crazy? I guess we don't need to know. Mm-hmm. just was. But, like, I mean, we see Scarecrow so terrified as a child that, like, at no point does he actually... That, that I remember, maybe it wasn't the earlier the early issues that, that he was shown to be obsessed with fear. He was just afraid, afraid, afraid. Um... Like, if you want to compare and contrast in the original continuity, he was always obsessed with fear. Like, he was fascinated by fear. It wasn't so much that he was afraid, at least as far as I, I can recall. It was just that he was, he was, it was like, you know, he had, it's like Firefly and his, his pyromania. Like, he just loved observing fear. Here, it's like, you know, his dad was abusive and that made, that had made him become a supervillain, which I think is a very lazy way to do it. And I suppose it is, it doesn't matter how, Effectively, is told that's that's what they're trying to do, but to me, it was so, so just sort of like a uh, a numbing kind of like story that like I didn't really feel much from it. That I kind of kind of just washed over me. I didn't really get that, I suppose. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Now, what do you think this? Uh, what do you guys think that this says of Batman? That like he's that scarecrow who obviously it's a lot of this is hallucinations, but Batman's having it in his head. You know, like you don't. Um, you know, you don't have any wives, you just have girlfriends, you push all your, your wards away. Um, I don't know. I feel that this again, I felt was sort of like, like well, well tread territory that I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you agree or not. Like, like, was this, was this also kind of like, did you feel that that was effective? I guess I'm basically asking us to review it, but did you feel that that was an effective plot to follow? I mean, like, 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 it's basically, what is Batman really afraid of? Is it, he's afraid of love and likeness? Or is it like, what, what was, what was the, what was the, the hallucinations trying to get at towards Batman's persona, I'm asking? 
I think the hallucinations, the the point behind them was that if Batman decided not to go and uh, try and specifically go for vengeance and decided to, you know, turn his parents' death into, you know, a mission to stop horrible people instead of helping the good people of the world, his life could have turned out very differently. I mean, the the whole thing was was basically like, what what would happen if you looked in the mirror and you were the opposite of what you are? And that was the idea. I don't think that realistically that would actually have worked for Batman. Uh, obviously, all of, like, the, the, at first, I got really confused in this book at first because I was thinking to myself, wait a second, so we're, we've already hinted at the idea of the Joker knowing Batman's secret identity in some of the series, and now we're talking that Jonathan Crane knows his identity too. Is Batman just known by everybody as who he is? So, but then it was revealed as the book went on that, you know, he was hallucinating the entire thing and that Crane was not talking to him. It was all in Batman's mind. But it was basically Batman, it was basically like if you looked at it, and it was almost as if uh, it was like It's a Wonderful Life. Uh-oh. Where you could sit there and say, oh, well, this could be your life if it was a different way. Uh, if you, you decided to change the path that you went on. Um, I don't. I don't think it was... I don't think it was it was bad in in that way. I, I think it makes sense. It, it realistically, Batman could end it up the other way, but I don't think all of the darkness points that they made about him not having a kids and him not having any kind of respect for his son or revealing his son to the public. Well, that's not true because we've seen Damien out in public with Bruce Wayne, so that 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 part didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, the, the one thing that's not related to this that I have to throw out, though, is uh, something to do with the art. The scenes where he's using the supposed uh, wrist laser it doesn't work. Um, because the first time he uses the wrist laser and it supposedly works and he breaks from the chains and then Scarecrow stops him, um, there's, there's a couple problems. Number one, he is not wearing gauntlets or anything, any kind of shirt whatsoever. He has nothing but his pants and his cowl on. So I don't know how a wrist laser would work if, uh, unless it's embedded in somehow into his skin. I... That's the first, that's the first thing. Now, I know that the wrist gauntlets that could possibly have the wrist laser were sitting on the desk across from where he was sitting in a glass jar. But I have a hard time believing that one, it would be able to go th- the a powerful enough laser to fry the chains would be able to go through a glass jar and still somehow have precise, accurate aim to break the chains. And then later on in the, in the the comic when he uses it again, it's the same thing. He's using it, but again. The gauntlets are not on his hands, so how exactly does that work? And that's not a scripting issue. That's the art issue, because I'm sure it wasn't said in the script these gauntlets are not supposed to be on his arms. Why? What was the point of Scarecrow needing to take Batman's shirt off? Well, why did that need to happen? But, Joe, I want to hear your explanation. I took it as the first one was a hallucination, so which would also explain how he managed to get into his costume in, like, 0.5 seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Okay. He said, you know, activate wrist armor lasers, and then, for some reason, the, the chains come off, and then he's in his costume. And then later on, when he says, wrist lasers activate, it's almost like a joke, is how I read it, as if he was set, because, you know, he immediately follows it up with, I didn't think that would work. Okay. But, I mean... That makes uh, a little bit more sense. Yeah. I mean, that's how I read it. I mean, obviously, it's up for 
interpretation, I might be rationalizing it and it might just be something idiotic. But, but anyway, back to Don's original thought. I think, Don, you hit it on the head when you said it was well-trodden territory. It it definitely feels that we've read stuff like this before. And I think it's something... I've, I've said this before in the past because we've read these stories in the past. It's something that's interesting, but we've read it so many times that it's, it's becoming cliched. And like I was kind of saying, I think that Batman uses that as an avenue to get Scarecrow to say oh, this is why I'm like this. Um, I mean, I, I don't think it's even particularly anything in, innovative in this. I don't think there's anything that Batman does which we haven't seen before. So, it, I, I also, I I mean, I think they had to explain that it was a super toxin because otherwise we just say, oh, well, Batman wouldn't be succumb to that. He's got a stronger, you know, a stronger will than that, more mind power. So they had to explain it with the super toxin, but I still don't think that Batman, one of Batman's fears would be that he could have been a lighter person. I think that he chose this life not of darkness, but of vengeance and to protect people. It's not like he chose this. It's not like persecution for him. It's not like punishment uh, yeah. for for you know having his parents die. It's he's trying to stop that happening to anyone else, and I think he's happy with that decision. It's what he carries on doing it, and it's why he's brought other people into that life with him. So yeah, I find yeah. that difficult to buy. Yeah, no, it's, it's like it's like I really feel in the last, uh, in the last like 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 six, seven or eight years, the bat books have gotten really, really, really masturbatory. In that they kind of want to have people concentrate on the idea that Batman is just like this hard nosed loner who is very antisocial and doesn't ever since freaking um identity crisis they've just they just hammered home this idea that like he's just like this anti-social one-dimensional anger has i mean we, we talked about this when we were recording the ogn uh uh special in that like at some point it kind of just becomes contradicting considering like like uh because like, like these these his uh circle of his circle of characters that that you know surrounded with supporting characters they all got in his life one point or another and obviously that's that's throughout history when he was like you know less developed but if you're trying to maintain that he has these relationships, it, it doesn't. It starts to kind of like, doesn't make much sense when you're saying like you know you will push him away, you know you've not done it in 80 years. But like, I think by this point, trying to present it as a viable story is kind of redundant. It's almost like saying like the real reason you're Batman is because your parents are dead. It's like uh, I don't know. I, I think it's well told, but what, but once you understand the point, if there is a point. Then it's kind of just uh, it doesn't really work for me, at least. I I think there's always sort of that thought of you know the road not taken though, and I think in that sense that this is sort of what is exploring like what would he have been, um, what would it have been like had had that road been taken, you know, had he not become Batman, had all that not happened, and I think we have seen the fear talks and do that, and, and really I'm thinking about the Batgirl-centric episode that may or may not be in Russian, um, you know, from <laughs> Batman the Animated Series, where, I mean, her greatest fear, you know, what would what would happen if I died, you know, just like an option there, and then her her fear was just that everything would be thrown to chaos, Gordon would be you know, he would, he would have all the heroes sort of on the most wanted list. So I think that 
it is possible. I do agree that, you know, we've seen sort of this villain origin before. I think that um, maybe it's a little harsh to say that we don't deserve one because it is a new 52 if we are accepting Penguin's origin that we did in uh, Pain and Prejudice, if we accepted Freeze's origin that we did in, I think it was an annual. Yeah. then I, I think we, we deserve to give this, or he deserves to, to get that chance. Uh, but yes, time and again, we've seen that a child that sort of has a bad upbringing sort of turns out badly, and this is what's happened. But I would encourage Donovan to remember, though, that he's not only affected by those experiments, but he also had sort of this um, sick desire uh, to look at fear as well because, a couple issues ago, we saw him in college and that he would, he, he like brought girls in and said, I can help you with your fear and like threw spiders on her or would bring like college classmates in there. So he also, he follows in his father's footsteps as well. So, um, don't completely put it on his father and say that he doesn't, uh, have that same sort of sick desire of it. But, but I do agree that, you know, this issue overall isn't as strong, I think, as, as the beginning issues of this particular arc. But I mean, what can you do? Yeah, I might agree. I mean, I, I, there, I do, I do kind of remember those issues that like had him actively honing his experiments because, like, otherwise, it's just another sob story about kids and Sucky's parents. I mean, the pain and prejudice thing. I mean, I, I kind of hesitate to call that an origin because you don't see the penguin become the penguin. You see, cause Oswald Cobblepot grew up in this crappy household, and him being, you know, a mob, a, a mobster. Uh, well. Batman, you know, fights crime. Like, I I think that these are kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm a, I think these are kind of like emotionally manipulative to a certain degree. Like, you know, feel bad for these villains because this is why they're villains. When they don't really kind of explain much beyond uh, just just general pathos. But yeah, that's, I I think that's just my reading of it. All right, so Batman: The Dark Knight's number thirteen. I'm going to give a total of. Three out of five batterings. Uh, uh, yeah, I might. I would only give it two and a half, but I, I didn't dis. I didn't really out and out dislike it. I just felt it was kind of like you know, ho hum. I give it three out of five, three out of five batterings. And I agree with you two as well. Three out of five. I'll give it uh, a step up. Three point five. All right. So Ben in the Dark Knight number thirteen gets a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Nightwing number thirteen. Bloodhaven was my city. I grew up in the shadow of the Bat, as Robin. And Gotham belongs to Batman. So when I became Nightwing, Bloodhaven became my home. Written by Tom DeFalco, art by Andres Ginaldo. The uh, issue starts off with Nightwing uh, going to a weapons factory where he is uh, expecting to run into some mobsters, but... Unfortunately, there's nobody, no, there's no mobsters out and about, and he's wondering if it has to do with the return of the Joker. As he goes back to his uh, house, he starts doing some research online. When suddenly he realizes that maybe he should ask the one of the biggest crime bosses in Gotham City what's going on, so he heads to the Iceberg Lounge to visit the Penguin. After he crashes into the Iceberg Lounge, he finds out that Lady Shiva is back in town. And he is told that that is why a lot of people are silent. After he leaves, we see him going to the new amusement mile project that he is working on, where he is talking with uh, some of the circus members, asking who's staying, who's going. Uh, finds out there is a new uh, new aerial act 
called the Soaring Serranos, and uh, they will obviously be similar to the Flying Graces, so that could be a foreshadowing mm-hmm. there. Uh, we then see Sonia Branch uh, appear with her assistant, talking about how some files or some some paperwork needs to be signed and notarized. And uh, after the assistant tries to hit on Dick Grayson, Sonia Branch brushes it off and uh, invites him to dinner later that night. Later that night, uh, Dick Grayson is at home. He gets a phone call from Sonia Branch explaining that she has to uh, cancel their meeting their business meeting, mm-hmm. that is, not a date, uh, because she has some work that she has to do. So instead he uh, gets into his Nightwing outfit and bumps into Batgirl. <gasps> and after Batgirl says that uh, she is going to uh, find Joker and make him pay for what he did to her all those years ago, um, she asks for his help. He says, uh, not really, and then she takes off. Uh, we then see Dick Grayson using the EMP mask that we saw way back in Batman number one, disguising himself as uh, his version of, I guess, Matches Malone, um, and asking, trying to find out some information about uh, where Lady Shiva could be. He finds out that there is a new criminal who's trying to make his name in Gotham by taking out Lady Shiva, and he's down by the docks. So Batman goes, or Batman. Nightwing goes down there and uh, attempts to stop them from taking down Lady Shiva just because he wants to bring her to justice and doesn't want to see her killed. Um, As a boat approaches the docks um, and they're all shooting at them, Nightwing takes out these people one by one. The boat crashes and he finds out that, in fact, Lady Shiva was never on the boat to begin with. In a uh, dark alley, we see the um, person that Sonia Branch was supposed to be meeting, the bank assessor, uh, meet up with Lady Shiva. Lady Shiva uses her crazy ponytail blade to uh, slice his throat. And we are promised next month, overpowered and outmatched, Nightwing battles Lady Shiva. Alright, so that's Nightwing number 13. So the first thing I want to talk about is... Um, I want to talk about the Sonia Branch aspect of this, this story because we... We see her snuff off her assistant when her assistant attempts to uh, flirt with Dick Grayson, and then she almost immediately says, you're excused, go to the limo. Oh, Dick, by the way, do you want to uh, go out for dinner tonight? And then we're left with the thoughts of Dick Grayson with himself wondering whether or not this is a date or if it really is a business meeting. So it kind of plays back into what we saw in issue number 12 with some of the... uh, the thoughts of, well, could this be going in the direction of romantic interest or not? So that's the first thing I want to talk about. Hear that, people? He's he's talking about shippers here. Um, I don't. I hope not. <laughs> I think I think it's kind of illogical that like, I know Dick Grayson's like the kind of you know a macho kind of guy who's women just can't help but be attra- attracted to them. But I think after a certain point, it kind of like. I don't know. It's, it's it just feels kind of weird that like, especially I remember when they first met, they weren't like very friendly to each other. They, I think they were just kind of like very platonic and trying to kind of keep away from each other due to their parents. So I'm not sure why that like this is a possible. I know every woman that's interested in that way book is obviously going to be in love interest, but I think that like having the daughter of the person who killed his parents is. I think there should be a little bit more complication than this, and it's just you know. Oh, this is awkward, and then like they just have to go on a date anyway. So I, it probably is 
uh, his future love interest, but I'm not sure if, if uh, I kind of wish it was going uh, going around a little bit differently. Yeah, I'm I'm just as confused as Dick Grayson as to whether she likes him or not. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Defalco was just kind of leaving it open for his short run on the book so that Higgins can carry on with is she or isn't she. Uh, it doesn't really bother me either way because either way it's not it's not going to stay that way. So if she does become a love interest for a short bit, then that's fine. She'll probably just get killed off in a year or two. And if he doesn't, well, then she'll still probably get killed off. So I'll just see what it does. Yeah, I think we've sort of seen this, you know, right from the very beginning of uh, when she entered and just like his his thought bubbles. I don't remember what they were, but just like looking at her as she walked away. And then I think in the previous issue, uh, she like gave him a kiss on the cheek. I don't think I'm I think that <laughs> I'm not pulling that out of nowhere. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. I wish we could see Nightwing sort of on his own, you know, with, like, no sorts of complications whatsoever going on here. Um, and I'm afraid that, you know, what if something sinister lies behind this this Sonya character and then maybe she's following in her father's footsteps and then she kills those high flyers and then she betrays Dick. And I'm like, well, this is the second time that he's been betrayed by somebody. So I think, I don't know. I wish they would come up with like a good love interest for him and, and not one that's just going to be thrown away after five issues or just not have any whatsoever. He has the issue. It's just like Bruce Wayne. I mean, Bruce has one love interest in each of his books and, you know, I guess Dick has to, He's got to catch up and and keep up somehow. That's the thing, though. It's almost like you no. Know, you feel that the writers feel that it's sort of mandatory. We have to have a love interest to keep them from looking gay or something. I don't know. It's just I feel that like it feels kind of forced, is what it is. You know. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that there cannot be a love interest, but she was initially interested to be an interesting character, to Dick Grayson, in like the Scott Snyder run, and now she's like translated to love interest because she's mainly female. I mean, I think that Raya was a little bit more of a natural love interest than she is. I think Raya was laying on a bit thick uh, on, her, on her own. So, like, I kind of wish it was just different. And they would develop her more as a character before making her a love interest right off the bat. Because that's all she really is. She's, she's not like a businesswoman or whatever. She's a love interest. That's I agree. Yeah, and, and I think really, you know, when you look at animated series – or um or or like really good books or something the the shippers that happen are sort of few and far between but when they happen it they're like developed so well and the characters are developed before the romance and you know i'm thinking about robotech for some reason but uh you know there's a love triangle but it was just the characters were so well developed on their own and then when they came together that was really well developed but these things like now it just seems like haphazardly thrown together and it just, it's its not as powerful, I think. Like Batwoman, I think that they're doing a good job over there, but here, not so much. All right, so then the the other thing I want to talk about is um, kind of the smorgasbord of supporting characters that have popped up in this specific issue. So we see Batgirl pop up, we see Lady Shiva have a very small role at the very end. I mean, obviously, she's mentioned by name throughout the entire issue, but she really just pops up in the final pages. But then in addition to that, we see um, Penguin pop up yep. again. We see Sonya Branch. We see hints at the, or not hints, but we, we see Amusement Mile and Haley Circus. 
and the possibility of them making a point about this uh, soaring Sorianos. Uh, so I guess the, so I guess the, the thing I want to talk about is what is the necessity for so many supporting characters in this book right now? Is it just really, let's get this out of the way and hit at all of these different things that have been happening. And so that, because they didn't happen last month with the zero issue and this new issue takes place, obviously two months after we hinted at any of this, is it, let's get this back in people's minds so they're thinking about it so that way um because the death of the family stuff's popping up soon um we might not be seeing some of this so was it really let's try to hit as many things as we possibly can or do you think it worked well at just refreshing the minds of the readers i think that the kyle higgins is uh no no tom Falco, sorry but I think that it's trying to chase the or at least it reminds me so maybe it's not trying to chase but like the initial Chuck Dixon run had a lot of supporting characters in that title. I think that, like, people feel that supporting characters really build a title's credibility. So I think that, like, you know, supporting characters don't hurt. And then I don't think they really do hurt as long as you don't have a lot of subplots with each character running around. Dick Grayson still needs to be the, the center of the, of the story. So I think they're just trying to build this, build their title, make it, you know, make it worthwhile to read for different aspects and kind of flesh it out a bit. Um, that's, the, that's what I'm trying to think they're going to do. Uh, I agree. I, I think that, well, it depends on the supporting cast, really, but, um, and I apologize in advance, Dustin, but, you know, Spider-Man, I think it was not only about Peter Parker and Spider-Man, but it was also really about, you know, a supporting cast, but they were so well done that it really helped make the book and the character stronger. Uh, right now, we don't know as much about these people, so I don't know if they're going to help or hinder the book. But if we can get characters that we love to read about um, and that really support the main character, Nightwing, then that'll be great. But I think the stories, they can't just be side stories. They have to actually interact with Dick. All right, so Nightwing number 13, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five bad ranks. Three, uh, three out of five bad ranks for me. It's a, it's a tri- triple sort of night. I'll only be giving this a three out of five bad ranks. 2.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, so Nightwing number 13 gets a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batgirl Annual. It has begun. <laughs> come out, come out, wherever you are, Catwoman. Batgirl Annual number 1, The Blood That Moves Us. Writer Gail Simone. Art Admira Wijaya. Okay, I apologize in advance, Admira. Pencils, uh, pages 26 to 38, Daniel Sempera and Letcher Desi Cienti. The slums of Gotham are on fire, and the arsons are being committed by homeless people. Batgirl is in one of the buildings, taking on a group of the arsonists, noting that there is someone behind it all, making the homeless people afraid enough to set the fires. In the middle of the fight, Batgirl hears the cry of a baby and tells the arsonists to get out, which, for some odd reason, they actually do. Batgirl saves a mother and her infant and bursts out of the building. All of this is watched creepily by Catwoman, who apparently does not like Batgirl. At the Harrowwood State Penitentiary, Commissioner Gordon is walking through the men's ward asking Sergeant Reeves about a particular inmate. Reeves calls her a dummy because she is a mute, and Gordon becomes incensed at the derogative term. 
They enter the cell and see Mary, the town that Batgirl faced during the Night of the Owls. Gordon has little information on the Court of the Owls and asks Mary to help him from hurting others like herself. He gives her a box of crayons so that she could sketch what she knows, but he gets nowhere and leaves. Sergeant Reeves feels Mary embarrassed him in front of the commission, so he takes it out on her later uh, by basically taking her food away. Later, Catwoman opens her door and opens Mary's door and declares that she is there to spring Mary. Later still in the Gotham slums, a one-legged Ricky meets up with Batgirl, who is looking for information on the slum fires. He says he cannot help writes the word owls on the side of a trash can, and tells her to go before his brother shows up. Too go. late. But in order to keep Ricky safe, she pulls the old kiss the guy in the alley trick. Wanna kill? Back inside the prison cell, <laughs> Catwoman tries to get Mary out, but she will not leave without her crayons. Reeves comes in, and Mary attacks with full force. Catwoman stops her from killing him, and they leave. Back with Batgirl, she nervously contemplates the word scrawled on the side of the dumpster, since she thought all the surviving talents were imprisoned in Blackgate. Well, apparently not. She interrogates some homeless people in an alley and gives money to a, another homeless family. Very strange. A homeless man then berates her for bothering them and tells her he knows whom she's looking for. Outside Harrowwood, Catwoman and Mary escape dressed in guard uniforms. Mary tells Catwoman her family is dead. Well, tells. You know what I mean, people. Uh, and she finds, and she has no friends. Looks like Catwoman is her first BFFL, and they get into a conveniently located car. Batgirl is doing reconnaissance on Mr. Parsons, the man scaring the homeless into committing arson. She also hears over the scanner that the talent she faced has escaped from prison. Batgirl reflects on Mary's history, how she knows it, we don't know, as she sees the talent herself and Catwoman appear at Mr. Parsons' penthouse. We learn that Parsons is going to put the blame of the arsons on Wayne, that he was doing it to make his rebuilding of Gotham easier. Sort of like a Nero burning Rome for his golden house sort of deal. Catwoman becomes incensed and backs out when she learns that innocence would be killed. And then he steps up the ante. So, Parsons is a member of the court. He sentences Catwoman to die. Mary and a group of other talents attack. Batgirl bursts through the windows, and they fight together. Now, apparently, Catwoman likes Batgirl. Things are going badly for both of them until Batgirl tells Mary that Parsons will burn innocents just like her family was burned. This puts Mary on their side, and the tide changes in their favor. Parsons threatens to shoot Mary with a liquid nitrogen bullet, gets a call, states that he will not be a liability, but then kills himself anyways in the manner of John Locke. Catwoman, I'm just kidding. Catwoman tells Batgirl that she will take Mary in, but then decides to help in another way by being a distraction to give Batgirl the time she needs to get Mary out of there. Catwoman goes out to meet the police and Batgirl takes Mary, finding uh, the irony that Mary both tried to kill and ended up saving her life, uh, but only if Batgirl knew Mary's name. See the talent next in Birds of Prey, number 14. Well, people, that was a trippy ride, wasn't it? You're going to be shocked by this. Um, because, you know, you guys know that I'm a shipper here. Um, and it's, it's, I guess it's about a ship. But I, I was just incensed. I was upset with it. Uh, and, and Donovan said, you know, it's no big deal. And then, you know, I threw darts at a picture of Donovan that I have on the wall. And, <laughs> no, Batgirl kissed Ricky in the alley. 
what are your thoughts on it? You know, am I making too big a deal of it? I thought that, number one, I thought this is not a bad thing to do. Uh, I remember way back when, when Batgirl kissed uh, Dick Grayson and uh, people were incensed at him saying, you know, grown women should not be doing that. She, she did that, you know, just to shut him up. Uh, and here, I guess we could argue the same thing. But number one, it seems more of a Stephanie Brown sort of thing to do. Um, just sort of like go off and this is how I'm going to do it. Now, her reasoning is I'm going to kiss him. So apparently this will be a good reason that his brother won't think anything fishy. My thoughts are, don't you think the brother would be even more suspicious that you're having a fling with a superhero? That seems like it's a bad idea. And why didn't she just like rough him up a little bit or threaten him or, or show force? Cause that would have been more believable, I think, than this, this sort of kissing thing. And it's just like another dumb move that I, I see Babs make that doesn't seem true to the character that, um, you know, we knew in the old 52. So I, what are your thoughts on her kissing Ricky in the alley? I have two thoughts on this. Uh, I think that like, I think you're, we talked about this. <laughs> I think that you're right in that it does make, it doesn't make a lot of sense because a superhero and a, and a street thug are not going to have some flame. That's just, that's just never going to happen. And the brother seeing it is just going to ask, like, like, he would want, any respecting man would say, I want details. How did this happen? Tell me now. And even when she, when she swings back waving at him, that just looks ridiculous. And I also think that, like, it makes more. It would make more sense if she was like threatening him or saying like, you know, stay out of my way or whatever. At the same time, though, I struggle with something like this. It's out of Barbara Gordon's character. Not to say that she goes around kissing people all the time, but I don't really see. I I don't really see like like the big sin of this scene because it was it was a way to start. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but I don't think it was just so. I feel that like you're kind of getting into like a, a nearing towards a, a moral stance of like. You know, she doesn't kiss random people, and, well, she, she could have given, given him her hair, but, like, I don't really see, like, the really, really bad part about it, because it wasn't like she just, like, slammed her tongue down his throat or anything, or, like, felt him up. She was just like, you know, kiss, see you later, baby, bye-bye, and then she like, just ran away. So, like, it was it was dumb, but I don't think it was, like, the worst part of the whole issue. My, my, my thought on this was, uh... I don't know how else she could they, they they could have done it where they could have explained as far as um how exactly um or why exactly she was meeting with Ricky in the first place. So realistically I think the problem was that they put themselves in a position where they had no choice. I guess the the question that I had about this was okay so she, they were forced to or she was supposedly forced to kiss him just because uh to make it believable that um, he was not working with her, but at the same time, uh, the biggest question is, so he specifically states when he walks up, oh, I can't really talk to you. If someone sees me talking to you, I'm going to be in so much trouble. My brother's still in the life and, you know, I, I really shouldn't be out here talking to you. But then like he's saying all of this out loud. And then when she asks him the question, he doesn't respond out loud. Instead, he writes a word in chalk on the dumpster. What was the point of that? Like, why did he need to write it instead of just saying it? If he's sitting there saying out loud, Oh no, if anybody sees me talking to you, I'm going to be in so much trouble. So then why do you feel the necessity to write your answer on a thing? Like, that didn't make any sense. And then 
when his brother comes up and he's like, oh, crap, my brother's coming. And she's like, oh, well, let me think real quick. Here, I'll kiss you. And then his brother has to make the comment, oh, tell me you're hitting that. Yes, because, of course, he's hitting hitting that. Because that's even more believable. I don't know. I just thought it was kind of stupid in the yeah. first place. But at the same time, I thought that the, the entire idea behind the meeting, it's just another way for Gail Simone to incorporate things that have occurred in the past and her issues. Yeah, I thought it was kind of stupid, but it, it didn't offend me. I mean, I, I think, well, I mean, who knows what sort of characterization she has. It seems to vary so much from book to book. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like exploitative or anything. I mean, it was her choice. It's not like he grabbed her and yeah. started kissing her and, as if it was like, oh, this is the only way that we can get out of this. Um it definitely felt like more maybe of a Selena Kyle type thing to do, but uh, yeah, it, I, it didn't bother me. I mean, I, I find it hard to care about this character at all, though, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we'll move on from that. I know you guys want more substance. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about the return of Mary the Talon? Now, um, kind of, if, if if you're only reading this book, and maybe not reading talent, then you'd have no idea that, hey, we didn't catch all of the talents. And so if you were to read this first, I think it would sort of catch you off guard. And I just wonder, you know, well, I wonder what the point was sort of in bringing her back. Um, because I remember in the review for when we, when we first saw her, um, I thought, well, she is sort of brought in as a sympathetic character because we see how she was brought into the court and how she lost her family and everything. And, um, you know, she scrawled in her own blood, wear mask too. Uh, and now here we've got Gordon brought in to add even more sympathy to it. And I just wonder, you know, what do you think about her return? Do you think, is there a point? What is the point? What are your thoughts on this? I kind of talked about this a little bit earlier when we were reviewing Talon about, you know, they're, they're still trying to grasp at the, the success of the Court of Owls crossover um, back months ago. And, again, it really just comes down to Gail Simone is really trying to tie everything that she's doing together in some way, shape, or form. We saw this in the last issue. We saw this... We saw this in 12, we saw this in pretty much every story arc where the story arc may be self-contained, but somehow it still relates back to something else that has happened in her entire run on Batgirl. And this is just another example of it. Honestly, this talent, the, 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 this entire story, I don't really understand the point of the yeah. necessity of the annual in the first place, other than, oh, well, here's the opportunity to tell a longer story than you could tell in a normal issue. Well, that's great, but what was the need for it? We we didn't learn anything else about Barbara Gordon. We didn't learn really anything that we didn't already know in any other issue. All we saw was that Talon, uh, the female Talon that was in Batgirl back in May, was in a jail nowhere near Gotham City, and that she is broken out of jail by Catwoman, who was hired by the Court of Owls, who then in turn she turns on. I mean, like, okay, so what? So what was the point of this? I mean, it says that Talon, at the end of the issue, it says that Talon's going to appear in Birds of Prey next. Great. So was this the, the basically the story of Talon changing over to the good side and then eventually the, the lead-in to her going to the Birds of Prey? Okay, well, what does that have to do with Batgirl? 
what did I mean? What was what was the point of needing to have Catwoman in the story and Talon in the story if this was supposed to be a Batgirl annual? Said very little to do with Batgirl at all. So I mean, as far as the Talon goes, I could care less. I like I said, I'm, I'm like the idea of Calvin Rose and Talon. I I am I'm holding my breath for that, and I think it could be okay, but. I don't need to see Talons in, in multiple issues. The Court of Owls story is over. They're moving on to Death of the Family. Uh, why can't we tell some some original mm. ideas? Because the problem is that I feel like some of these writers don't have original ideas. They have to use what was created before them, which is what we're seeing in Hollywood on a daily basis when they announce sequels and prequels and all this other crap instead of releasing original ideas. So, I mean, the thing is, I would have preferred to see a really good Barbara Gordon story that could have stood alone on its own instead of seeing a story about a talent who was essentially made the main character of this annual, even though it's a Batgirl annual. You bring up a good point with Catwoman, too, because I wonder why she would um, trust the Court of Owls or even allow, you know, be hired by them when she herself fought them in her own book during Night of the Owls. So that kind of seems strange. I was just confused throughout because I was under the impression that all of the talents were in a cryogenic type prison underneath Blackgate and they were all frozen so that they couldn't regenerate. Um, maybe that got stopped because it's not the humanest of lives, but. Well, they, they hinted at that and they said that the talons were done, but then they said, oh, well, you re-, or I think this was actually mentioned more so in Talon than it was here. But they made a point of, well, there's 26 of them in Blackgate Penitentiary that are frozen beneath beneath the ground. And, you know, did you think that was all there was? And they said that in the Talon, you know, in Talon number one, but they never addressed it in in Batgirl in this annual. So that that was a good, good point because they make a point at the beginning of the issue that all the Talons except for this one Talon is locked up in Blackgate, and then all of a sudden we have all of these other talents that are popping out of nowhere that was never really addressed. Now, despite the fact that talent number one came out before Batgirl Annual, I'm pretty sure Gail Simone didn't bank on the fact that it was going to be discussed in talent number one. And if the editor knew that too, normally the editors make these, you know, those little notes of, oh, see, Bat- uh, see talent number one for why there's more talents or whatever. I mean, that, that to me is just, it, again, it's we're, we're just, we're, we're not following, I mean, she's not even following her own script, where she says in her own script that all the talons are locked up, and then suddenly, later in her own story, there's more talons, and it's not explained why, why there's more talons. And it's never, it really bothered me, though, that it's not explained why this one talon is in Harrowwood. Like, why is she special that she gets in there? Uh, well, yeah, I guess, you know, if I were to come up with another topic, but I think we've sort of already touched on is, you know, this this story, its place as an annual, and I think it just doesn't really hold up to, to what it should be. But I did wonder what you thought about the art. Um, and sort of the Batgirl suit is actually getting back to basics now. It doesn't really have that purple uh, inseam, um, especially with the capes or just the purple highlights. And I just thought the art was really dazzling and, and well done, and I think the best the art has been so far. Well, they've, they've, uh, I think they've, they've had her costume recolored to be more a little bit more like the actual Batgirl costume from of old days, like the black costume, like a few, several months ago. Like I, I, uh, I think I've, I've noticed that before. Like it's different from when it started out. Um, in terms of the art, I thought it was good, 
but uh, it was it's that kind of art where like it, it's pretty to look at, but after a while, the, as a for in a story where it requires like you know sequential storytelling, it was a little too static for me. I was kind, I was kind of, <laughs> I was a little missing Ed Benes because uh, I just I just find Ed Benes work at the very least noticeable, and I think like the scenes with Gordon, the scenes with Batgirl running around, a lot of it felt very very stiff. And I'm not saying it was out bad, but like it didn't feel very natural or loose enough to really feel like a story was being told, more like vignettes of a story. And then they kind of hurt the art. There was one scene where like when a Catwoman uh, is entering his first meeting Talon, and she says, "You know, I'm here to spring out, kiddo." She's like unzipping her her uh, costume, and I, I was like, "What the hell is going on here?" And then like at, at no point is that ever followed up on. And I noticed that that's the thing that they're doing now with Catwoman's costume because it's usually like that skin tight thing, but just to unzip it, just so they can show the cleavage, which is going to get me on my soapbox. I mean, look at the cover for the Just League in America; it's so stupid. But that's that's what I thought about the art. I didn't like the art, um, especially halfway through the book when uh, we see Catwoman and Batgirl teaming up. I thought I absolutely hated that art. Um, suddenly, everybody seemed to gain twenty five mm-hmm. pounds. And become very, very thick in all of the oddest places. Um, the arts in the beginning of the book, I, it kind of, I, I hate to say this, but it kind of reminded me of, uh, a very, very rough Dustin Wen in some regards where no, nowhere near as detailed as Dustin Wen, not nearly as good as Dustin Wen, but it kind of, it had the, the appearance of, uh, Dustin Wen. But honestly, throughout this entire issue, I just didn't really like it. I did. I thought I, I, I did like the Batgirl costume, though. I thought it was pretty good. Um, I didn't have any issues with that. It's just once that art changed halfway through the book, which is, again, another thing that I cannot stand. I mean, it's, it's understandable if you have a story that is monthly and you have a monthly artist that's on the book. And, you know, because they're, they're very strict about this, you know, they want the books to come out on time, which I appreciate and understand completely as to why they have to have fill-in artists. But for an annual that was announced, you know, over, well, at this point, it was announced the beginning of July, which means they had to be planning it for quite some time before. And it's not a series regular artist. Why couldn't the artist do the entire issue? Either one of them. I don't really care which one. I I still wouldn't have liked the art either way. But why? what was the necessity for having an artist finish the book instead of one artist doing the entire book. So to me, I just don't understand their thought process behind this. They've got plenty of time to get this done, and yet they don't because of why. Because they just took too long to do it. Well, the only people who are suffering are us, the readers. I would definitely agree with that. Um, I I can't stand artist changes. They really bother me, especially with something like this when... I mean, well, as Dustin was saying, there's plenty of time for this to get finished. Um, as for the actual artists, um, I was actually really taken aback when I opened the book and saw that first page. I thought it looked really good. Uh, I thought Bat, Bat Girl looked really good throughout the book, but she was about the only character. I think it's, I like the way her costume is drawn in this. Um, but a lot of the other characters looked a bit off. It was kind of that, weird mix of realism but it's more just sort of like a painterly style and it makes a lot of people look quite creepy especially commissioner gordon i thought he came across looking quite odd <laughs> um 
and the artist changed. I didn't like the second artist as much. But overall, I, I liked it. It was, I guess, nice to have a, a change, although it wasn't necessary. It was, I assume it was just so that Benis could keep up with his work on the regular title. But yeah, I, I still have no idea why two artists were required. But All right, so Batgirl Annual number one, I give a total of one out of five. <laughs> I'll give it two out of two and a half out of five batterings. I will give the Batgirl Annual one and a half out of five batterings. Uh, I'll also give it two and a half. All right, so that gives the Batgirl Annual number one a total of two out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Catwoman number 13. I am Catwoman. Meow. Catwoman number 13, written by Anne Nascenti, with art by Raphael Sandoval. Catwoman is perched high above the city on a catwalk when a burnt, stuffed animal cat floats down to her on a balloon. Selina pops the balloon and the cat falls to the street far below, but as she does this, she recognises the toy. We're treated to a flashback where Lola tries to give the stuffed animal to Selina in what we assume is an orphanage, but Selina is far too cool for that, and then the room explodes. Back in the present, Selina tries to chase down the person who floats the cat through several nonsensical pages before we cut to later, and everyone's favourite scene, the seemingly compulsory half-naked catwoman section of the book. And why not throw in some casual racial stereotypes for good measure? Hey! To sum up the scene, although you'd be forgiven for being distracted, Selina has bought a glass penthouse and is showing it off to Gwen, who gives her a job to do. Catwoman meets a man named... Trip Winter in a chess club, who gives Catwoman the highest details in chess analogies. The next morning, Catwoman is scoping out the target, and it turns out that she's literally dealing with chess pieces, albeit huge ones. Catwoman jumps onto a balcony and ties up the Black Queen. She then uses one of the heavy guards as ballast to swing down to a rooftop where she collides with the White Queen, except there is a child in the White Queen, which promptly explodes. Catwoman then sees the pawn in a trash can, and a little boy, who she rescues before the bin explodes. So, that was Catwoman, fe- featuring 300% of your body's daily required intake of vitamins TNA, as well as a healthy dose of excessive face-kicking and child death. <laughs> so, uh, I guess my first talk is, did anyone even know what the hell was going on? I was hoping you did. Uh, I I did the best with that summary, but especially the first few pages. I mean, it was there was a toy involved. There was some inner monologue. Then it was a flashback of them in the most spacious orphanage that I've ever seen, featuring flat screen TVs. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I I can kind of help out with this. Okay, so the beginning um, with the the toy, the idea of that was that she is under the assumption that. Well, okay, well, I at least came to the conclusion that she was being taunted by the Joker. And it's the Joker who's actually uh, taunting her with this toy from her friend Lola, who they're in Lola's apartment. And then basically they're, they show that Lola's apartment eventually blows up and this, that, and the other. So then we cut back to the present time where she is chasing this person and she is coming across all these memories of Lola. So that's that's what I was getting out of it, was basically someone was taunting her with the fact that Lola was dead, 
and using Lola's toys as a way to taunt her. That's what I got out of the beginning. Now, after uh, we we see the um, we see her go back to the penthouse and things like that, I I really didn't understand other than they were just trying to get across to the point of, okay, well, she's continuing on with her world and this, that, and the other. And from there, it really just seemed like somebody was basically hired her to do some stupid game with these chess pieces. I really didn't understand the, the idea behind this and the point and why she had to, you know, basically steal these chess pieces and in the process beat the living hell out of uh, all these people because she wanted this chess piece, unless she was getting paid an exorbitant amount of money to get the chess pieces. So you think that the the rooftop chase scene was sort of metaphorical? Or was she literally chasing her own shadow, whatever that was? I think think ultimately she probably was... She probably... Okay, well, this is... This is... this. You don't get this from the issue, but I took it as... Maybe she heard that the Joker was back. The Joker could have taunted her with that uh, stuffed bear cat or whatever. I think it's a cat. The stuffed cat hanging to the balloon. Now, the reason why the thing keeps popping up all over the place could just be the Joker messing with her. That might be the case. And eventually when she started chasing the shadow and she found out it was herself... That could have just been, you know, herself playing tricks on her own, uh, on herself because she got too worked up about it could have been the Joker, you know, watching her. So I don't think it was necessarily metaphorical, but I think what ended up happening was that I think there was a lot of different points that, you know, the Joker is messing with her. And that's part of the reason why this was supposed to be the prelude. There was also some other small little things that pop up relating to the Joker, which... I don't know if everybody noticed this, but when she's in the chess, um, the chess bar or whatever, the chess club, um, when she's sitting there, there's a, ch- there's a chess board behind her, and there's a couple panels, and around the chess board, there's the, there's, there's images of not the Joker, but a Joker, like as the border of the chess board. And I just thought that was kind of weird because if you look at the other chess boards in the room, none of them have borders except for the one that just happens to be behind her as a Joker. So I think the the entire issue was just trying to get across that, hey, the Joker's screwing with Selena, or maybe the Joker's not screwing with Selena, it's somebody else that, and she doesn't know who it is, but she's thinking it could be the Joker because she's heard that the Joker's back. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of took it to be the Joker only because I know it's like a prelude to the death of a family, but other than that, I mean, do you think that's an artistic issue or a story issue that... Well, it says it says in, the, in her thought thought caption, "Why do I feel like I'm being watched these days?" Which I think is actually really clever because it's it's actually if you're not looking it out for it, it's very kind of subtle because the Joker thing is looking at her, so it could be very well be intentional. And then um, I think another thing, like you just mentioned, with the the board around the chess piece was um, when she's scoping out the the site, you know, and she's looking at the notices the guy in pizza saying, what's a low life like that doing in such an expensive apartment? And then she looks at the other side and there's a couple of fighting says, oh, it looks like they're into cosplay. Um, I'm pretty sure that's like a, it's like a Joker-esque outfit. 
Yeah, there's a yeah. couple different there's a couple different variations of jokers that you would see on joker playing cards on that clothesline. I mean, I don't other than just the overall theme of the joker possibly watching her, I didn't really see how this was tied to the to death of the family exactly. other than that. Which is why I mean, I just wonder when people bought this like off the shelves that this sold out. I'm just wondering like what did they think after they read it? They thought it sucked. <laughs> I'm sure most of them were very confused by it. So I was kind of wondering about what people feel about the themes of the book, and is it okay to have eroticism as well as infanticide in the same book? Mm-hmm. Because can you elaborate? Well, well, like yeah, I I get that like Catwoman's supposed to be a bit sexy, and she, you know there's scenes, lots of TNA in the book, but then in the same issue we have like children being killed, and it feels that you can kind of either go one way or the other. But you can't sort of have this, like, you know, like, um, like titillation, and people are like, oh yeah, that, that's pretty hot. And then, like, a few passages later, it's like, oh, well, now I feel dirty because a, a little girl's just blown up. And, I, I like, think, oh. it, I mean, it feels to me like it's trying to be a PG 13 exploitation film. I think you're right in that, like, this book and some other books try to be a certain level of maturity to where there are constant themes and situations that lend themselves to older audiences. Um, and it, it, it could be how the writers act, or the writers um, just tend to write. I think that, like, there's a difference between sexualization and exploitation. I mean, anybody with a brain cannot deny that Catwoman has always been a very sexual character, but there's a difference between her just acting sexy and being a tight leather costume and uh, a panel of her swinging towards a building with her butt, like, arched as though she's, like, you know, she, she's, she's drawn like a table. <laughs> like, I, I don't know, the, the scene where, like, she's, she's swinging, it's, like, on page 13. She's swinging towards a building. It's, it's like, come on. Like, it's almost it's almost degrading to the readers. <laughs> but uh, I think in, in writing and in storytelling, you can have any sort of, you can have any thing regardless of content, and as long as it serves a story. But the question is always, like, do, do these effectively serve the story? I don't necessarily think that the shots of her in her underwear were all, like, gratuitous, because they were kind of faraway shots, and, you know, people can be in their underwear. I mean, that's why people wear underwear. But I think that, like, much of the time... I think that Selena Kyle is a character that people don't take very seriously, both in uh, mainly, mainly in the writer's room. And I'm not saying that, like, she's, like, this grandiose character, but I feel that, like, a lot of times she's sort of seen as this, this piece of meat part of the bat bat books um, that just, you know, she can, ha- she can be involved in these, like, you know, like, let's save the children's stories, but ideally what they, what they're mainly concerned about is just kind of serving the TNA. And I think having a child death typically never really works unless it really shows, uh, it really makes you sit, it, unless it really seals the threat of whatever, what is happening. If it's just kind of tertiary, it's sort of like, you know, as, as the way of the events, and it's not really remarked upon, I feel it's kind of like, uh, emotional exploitation, because that's not, that's, that's not something that anybody wants to really read, so, unless this is really like her being seriously mad at whoever she's going after, which I doubt it's going to happen, considering the last page, I think it's just kind of like needless TNA. It's, it's TNA, it's, it's, it's trying to write, write this stuff in here, like, oh, this would be really mature, and it's being really kind of like, kind of dull and, and, and really a, fl- a, 
a really flatly effective kind of story that doesn't really just kind of makes you feel annoyed and uh, not really feeling good after you read it. And don't you want to feel good when you read a cut one story? I mean, ideally, or you read any comic. I feel like a lot of these stories, even Batgirl to a certain extent, feels like it doesn't want to be very happy. It just kind of wants to have these dark stories to sort of legitimize itself. And yeah, Batman's a dark character, and these are dark themes, but like, you know, you can make it, like, there is a point where you kind of either make it depressing or redundant. I feel like that almost one of those books that, that tends to do that. I, I definitely agree, you know, especially, you know, that really harkens back to, you know, I, I, I have a couple privileged stories that I can't share, um, but DC really likes, for some reason, these dark and brooding stories, and if there's a happy story, they'll want to tone it down a bit because they feel like, you know, people want this dark and brooding thing. And, you know, I've said it before, and I've said it many times before, but Catwoman is a pretty cool character, but she's, like, given all this and I don't know if that's what they think we want to read, but it's really not. And right now it just seems like this is the trash book. And and I don't mean trash as in it's not very good, which it really isn't. But, like, just, like, throw in all sorts of, like, bad and degrading, you know, storylines, things that, you know, really get at the viewer. You know, like SVU to, like, the 10th degree. I mean, we had prostitutes and, and someone taking in their insides. Now we've got child murder. What is going to happen next? And it just seems like really heavy for a character that generally loves life. And I mean, just reading Hush, I mean, Hush was, it had its dark moments and everything. And she was involved in, you know, some, some darker things, but she still had fun with it. And I still respected the character and I really enjoyed seeing her in that format and just the way that she was sort of, you know, quote unquote, dancing with Batman and everything. And that's the Catwoman that I think we deserve. The Catwoman that we saw, you know, in theaters this summer. This is just, I, I, it's just too much. And, you know, I gripe about seeing Dinah in the shower, you know, during Birds of Prey number zero. And of course, this is, worse and it happens every issue so you'd think i would be insensitized to it or desensitized but it's still i don't know and i'm just shocked i guess um you know when i heard a female was coming on the book i guess i was an idiot but i thought hey i i, I have a lot of hope i think that nascenti is gonna do a good job i, I think hopefully you know because she's a female should bring something back to the character and it seems like it's taken a nosedive i don't know that that was just my incorrect perception of what was going to happen. I'm still, I'm still digging this a little bit more than Winning's one, though. To, personally, I mean, like, I don't yes, think it's good, yeah. but like, Winning's one was like sort of aggressively annoying. Like, it was trying to piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wanted to say, like, it, it the TNA and stuff. It doesn't bother me because I kind of get that that's what Kevin is. I just feel that it's odd to have that kind of blend of that mixed with this hyper-violence and it's, it, it seems like it's going for a, a multiple kind of con, like controversies and like when you, you're going for too many, it gets stretched out. Yeah. It's just, it's just, I think that, um, I think that the case, the case has been made before this, this is not me like coming up with this. This is, this is like people been talking about this and ever since Danny came into DC and ever since specifically identity crisis, like there's a big, theme of Dan Dio introduced and Dan Dio and Jeff John specifically introducing a lot of violence in the DC universe to sort of legitimize uh, the heroes that uh, they're, they're overcoming these really harsh threats. Uh, cause, cause Dan Dio, he says this in the, uh, 
Crisis on Tour special, special, uh, two days special where he talks about how, uh, living in New York after the September 11th terrorist attacks, he w- he really was influenced by the people, like the firefighters and policemen who went in there to help people. So he felt that he needed to uh, put into DC Comics a sense of urgency and desperation. And a lot of readers who are critical of Denadio's tenure in, in DC took this as a way to explain why we had stories like Blackest Night, which is basically a Walking Dead zombie story, where you would see heroes, you know, be all messed up and Yankees do those hearts out and do these horrible things. And ever, I mean, I, I, I kind of co-sign all that because it just adds up with what we've been seeing. Like, I remember even before the 52, we've been talking about violence. I know I have. And like, you can have violent moments. Death in the family was violent. Um, you know, killing joke was violent. You've had, we've had violent stories, but they tend to serve the story in a way where the heroes actually react to the violence. They actually feel shocked. They actually feel emotional pain. They actually feel mental scarring. And here, yeah, I suppose it is a lot like a lot like a lot of artists for you. We kind of have to like just deal with it because that's your job. But to a reader, after a while, it's like you know we read comics for escapism. And if you're a Batman fan, you're not a Batman fan because you like the dark stuff. You're a Batman fan because Batman's kind of cool. And if his characters are always into these like you know really bloody things, that it just kind of gets it, it gets old after a while. Do we have any like fun sort of lighter book in the New Fifty Two? And I was like thinking about this as Don was talking. I really don't think that we do. I thought that Static was going to be one. Then at the end of the first issue, he had his arm chopped off. So, All right, so Catwoman number 13, I'm going to give a total of two out of five batterings. It was two out of five batterings as well. I'll give this 1.5 out of five batterings. I'll give this one out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Catwoman number 13 a total of one and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our last book, Batwoman number 13. We don't have- Bell Number 13, World's Finest Part 2, Stygian, written by both J.H. Williams III and W.H. Bla- w. Hayden Blackman, uh, colored by Dave Stewart, lettered by Todd Klein. Uh, this continues the team-up between Batwoman and Wonder Woman as they are searching for... I struggle to remember. <laughs> Medusa, that's right. Yeah, I was about to guess Medusa. that. Medusa. Um, and the entire time, Batwoman, uh, aka Kate Kane, is actually kind of in awe over Wonder Woman, even though she's fought crazy things and uh, Bloody Mary, and she she meets a guy with a skeleton for her head. She really is like taken aback by Wonder Woman, and is not sure how to how to interact with her. While Wonder Woman has all in her head, she has nothing in her head but the mission. So they enter Medusa's cave and they go around this sort of maze, seeing these all these desiccated corpses of the guards, and running into some sort of centaur soldier. And eventually, they get overtaken by these, uh, oh, I should say Minotaur. They get overtaken, overtaken by these, like, black, evil centipedes. Uh, they're just dragged into the darkness. After a scene with the DEO, with Agent Bones, uh, we cut back to Batwoman and Wonder Woman, where they are. So, Nyx has Batwoman and Wonder Woman in his or her, I think it's a her, clutches. It's kind of hard reading out whether uh, Wonder Woman is having these reactions, like you know, it's I can't feel my hands, you know. And she talks about her own heritage. Kate's just trying to keep her head together and trying to trying to find out because she can't see anything. So eventually, she pulls out this flare that the DEO gave her when they updated her equipment, and they eventually escape the maze by just bursting through the wall. The centipedes uh, go after them, but eventually explode, and Kate manages to get one of the. Uh, DEO's flying subs to rescue them. And before the issue ends, we see a scene between her father and Bet. And Bet is, or Betty, 
she is she's trying to keep it together because she's just come out of you know a coma, and her uh, Kate's father is trying to say like what can I teach her? She's she's not ready yet, and there's a big flame bird uh, image to sort of uh, symbolize where she's going to be going in her superhero career. Uh, eventually, Batwoman and Wonder Woman run into uh, track down Pegasus, who lives in a trailer park of all places. Pegasus is pretty messed up. His skin is rotting. We can see his skeleton, his ribs, his nose has fallen off. He's missing one of his teeth. And um, Diana ends the issue by thinking, whatever my fate is, I cannot escape it. One way or another, I will give him my hand so that neither of us will die alone. Next issue, heads will roll. So that was Batwoman number 13, uh, continuing the team up between Batwoman and Wonder Woman. And um, I, for one, thought it was a, it was an interesting team up, but I think that... Uh, I think I liked a lot of what Kate Kane's uh, reaction was to Diana, but I think that Diana, in terms of this team up, was a, written a bit. She was almost. I, I think I'm not really kept up too much with her own titles. I think she was almost written a bit too. She 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 her her way, her manner of speaking was a bit too old school, I suppose. Right about her phrase, a little bit too classic, and as such, I thought she was, I felt a little too alien. She has been she's been on Man's World like five or six years by this point according to uh, Justice League. So I was wondering how you guys thought uh, both how she was written and how she worked in this title. I thought she kind of came off a little... I thought that she was written a little bit too... I don't know. It's, it's almost like, you know, writing Superman a bit too Boy Scouty. Like Wonder Woman's like this sort of, you know, like we, we must fight him and, you know, blah, 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 Amazons, blah, 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 my destiny, fight, fight, fight kind of way. So I was kind of taken aback by that. But what did you guys think about how Wonder Woman was in this issue? I thought the... The, the easiest way to compare Wonder Woman's uh, personality and characterization in this issue is uh, the way she was portrayed in Justice League The New Frontier. Um, very, uh, I'm the female, and I am a warrior, and we must fight, we must fight, we must fight. And, I mean, like, that's... I don't know exactly how she's being characterized in her own series by Brian Azzarello, because I haven't been reading uh, Wonder Woman, so I don't know for sure if that's what they're doing with the character or not. But, I mean, honestly, I'm stuck more on your comments about the fact that she does feel too alien-like. And because of the way Kate Kane is thinking about Wonder Woman, and she's like, oh, look at this, and look at her skin, and this, and then even Wonder Woman's thoughts of, well, I wonder what she's thinking of me. Does she think of me as just a hero and wrapped in her own country's yeah. tiger? What does she think of me? And blah, blah, blah. And, like, to me, that just came across as, okay, realistically, like you said, she's been around for a while. Batwoman might not have been around for a while, but Wonder Woman's been around for a while. She's not going to sit there and be, like, thinking to herself, Oh, I can't. I wonder what this person who isn't from Themyscira is thinking of me. Oh, I wonder. Because why would she? Why would she even think about that? It's not like she, this is the first person she's ever come in contact with outside of Themyscira, so what's the point? The biggest thing with this issue for me was that it was just, again, very wordy. And it wasn't wordy like the last issue, where the last issue was wordy, but it, you know, it flowed well because it was essentially supposed to be a letter. I had a real big problem with how much text there actually was in this and also the layout of the art. Now, most of the time I, you know, it's very easy to, fl to, to follow exactly the, f the flow of the panels and things like that with J.H. Williams, especially with, you know, every page being a two page splash. 
but the reality is that with this issue, I have a hard time understanding exactly where the text was supposed to flow next to because of the way everything was laid out. There was a couple splash pages where the wording just didn't make any sense. So that doesn't have a lot to do with the way Wonder Woman's portrayed in this, but it, to me it just made it seem as see, seem even more alien-like because of the difference between the fact that there was even more text than a normal issue, and then in addition to that, Wonder Woman's in the issue, and the the art is basically screwing with the, the actual flow of the story. To me, it just came off as this was like a complete outside like an out, like an outsider interrupted the book and interrupted the entire flow of what we're normally used to. Yeah, I agree. I, that point where she was like, "No, how does she see me?" She talks like Thor from the Avengers, basically, like like that kind of like really out of place manner. And I know Wonder Woman does have that kind of dialect where she says, "You know, Hera, help us," and stuff like that. But she sounded like she. Uh, it's almost like she she's too familiar with her Amazon ways to sort of like you know think. And maybe this is just me, because I'm not saying like, it was out and how bad, but it was just sort of like not how I was really... I've never read Wonder Woman to be that out of touch with contemporary speaking. Well, I was going to say, I've never really read any Wonder Woman, so it it didn't bother... Yeah, it didn't bother me. I kind of... I felt that she was written as weaker than Batwoman, or at least Batwoman, you know, the kind of typical thing where you like to see Batman is more intelligent and better prepared than Superman. And I mean, in a lot of cases he is, but it, sometimes it comes across quite forced. And I think it, in a way this was written so that Batwoman really did come across a lot stronger than than Wonder Woman to the point of Wonder Woman not even really needing to be there. And maybe that's because it's dealing with uh, like Greek mythology and stuff and that's the reason why she is there, but it's also the reason why she's affected by it more than Wonder Woman, than uh, Batwoman, sorry. Her her actual voice didn't bother me, but her characterization I felt could have been strong. As for the amount of text, that certainly hit me like a brick wall. Um, there, was, there was a lot of dialogue and text, and I was all ready to get really annoyed by it, but J.H. <laughs> Williams keeps managed to suck me in and I end up it never bothers me I think this is, I find a lot of it so interesting that it, it never I never get irritated by the amount of text it never bores me um yeah going off of the text one and then I'll go back um I think that it worked really well in the uh, the narrative um, number zero that we saw, but this one was indeed. It, I, I had the same issue that Dustin did, just sort of following it. I remember that black, um, that black page or double page, just whether in darkness. That one was like completely. It was just so much because Nick's had stuff written everywhere, and then there was like other stuff. That was that was like the mind-boggling one. I think characterization-wise, um, Diana could have been stronger, but voice-wise, I think it was spot on. Besides, you know, the like, oh, what is she thinking of me? You know, I just keep thinking about the Justice League animated quote: uh, "We warriors are Amazon born." I mean, she does kind of had this this old timey um, way of speaking, and you know. Even though Thor has been, you know, on Midgard for a long time, he still keeps up with um, Asgard. 
No, Midgar, because he's on Earth. Oh, the, oh never mind. <laughs> because, you know, even though he's with the Avengers on Midgar, and he's got people, you know, like Tony or um, Hawkeye talking to him and, and their sort of idioms and their jokes and stuff, he still doesn't change. And I think if you were to have Wonder Woman sort of take up these things that are, like, plainly, you know, American or, or joking, it wouldn't really feel right. And I think that, you know, that is the way that she talks, just talking about fighting and by Hera, Hera, give me strength, that sort of thing. And I, I do suggest reading the uh, the Wonder Woman New 52, it's actually really good. And she does have this, This, I mean, it keeps in line with her character over there as well. Well, uh, the second point I had was uh, with Betty Kane, or Bet Kane, or Flamebird, or Batgirl. Uh, she, I thought, I was, I would personally was, was taking a bit, I don't know if she was standing in the last issue, but I was, I'm kind of taken a bit aback by how quickly she's recovered from her her very, very near-death coma, where she was gutted through the, the stomach by a, a scythe. And um, I'm kind of wondering... First, I, first of all, I just had a problem with that. But, like, is, is, I'm not sure if there's been a big time skip between, in between issues. But uh, I'm kind of wondering what you guys are thinking about like, where this character is going. Because I remember when the series started up, at first, it looked like she... I thought she was going to die, because she was just this total... Like, 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 rookie of a, so at least she was written like such a rookie of a superhero. <laughs> Despite the fact that she was, she was in the Teen Titans. But, um, now I'm wondering if she's, I'm wondering if she's going to continue being Flamebird. They keep on using this Flamebird imagery, but like, uh, if she's going to be, uh, taught by, uh, Kate's father. Uh, the DEO mentioned, you know, if, if Batwoman dies, they would, they would convince her to become Batwoman in her place. So there's a lot of foreshadowing or a lot of like, you know, wondering what's going to happen to Betty Kane. So I was wondering, where do you guys think this character's going? I think the the basic thing that I'm getting across is that uh, Jacob feels as if he has failed with Kate Kane because you know because she's mad at him because of the whole reveal that her sister was still alive. So he's looking at Betty as an opportunity to basically um, pick up where he left off and turn her into uh, the superhero that she wants to be, but also make sure that, uh, you know, what happened to her before doesn't happen again by giving her the training that she needs. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the uh, the speed of her recovery can kind of be uh, taken to, you know, when she's supposed to be meditating and she's thinking about how Kate, you know, after just a week of being stabbed in the heart, she was off the medication. I think that's giving her some drive to try and recover as fast as she can and can, and to be a stronger person so that she can be like her or, or better than her because, you know, to prove herself to Kate after she said that she couldn't be her psychic anymore. I'm afraid that it's going to push um, Kate and Jacob further apart because, I mean, this is the reason why Kate pushed Bet so far away from her is because, like, she did not want this life for her. And so I'm just wondering if she's just going to go off, like, well, Bet's just going to go off unsanctioned. And, you know, Kate's going to get upset at her once more. Uh, well, you know, I, I will say that I do like that she's actually being developed as opposed to, like, this character just written off because she was treated like such a joke in the early issues. So I, I'm glad that, like, her traumatic experience is developing her. If nothing else, that's the best way you can develop a character than, or, as opposed to just, well, I can't think of anything to do with them. I'm trying to kill them. All right, so Batwoman number 13, I'm going to give a total of 
three out of five better ranks. I shall give this issue three out of five better ranks as well. I'll give every issue three out of five except for the last one. Uh, I'll be giving this four out of five better ranks. Three out of five better ranks for me. All right, so Batwoman number 13 gets a total of three out of five better ranks. That is all of her books. Let's go over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I am once again your host, John, and in this issue we will be reviewing Gordon's Law. This was written by Chuck Dixon and has art by Klaus Janssen, who is most famous, obviously, for his work on The Dark Knight Return and his work on Daredevil with Frank Miller. It collects the four-issue miniseries, which was released in December 1996, and it was 110 in the pre-orders chart. It cost $2 at the time, and it has never been released as a trade paperback, but you can still pick up the issues from Amazon. So, is this going to be any good? Will we see a new side of Gordon, or will it just be the same old, same old? Join me as I delve into Gordon's Law. Nice. I couldn't find any mob bosses. Well, Sergeant. Oh, it's Lieutenant now. You really started something. Bent cops running scared, hoping on the streets. But the narrows is lost. And we still haven't picked up Crane or half the inmates of Arkham that he freed. We open with Gordon dealing with a bank robbery in which they have taken hostages, and they start to kill them. Whilst Gordon is trying to deal with that, a call for backup is received as the robbers have broken out through into a subway station. However, when the police get there, it turns out to be a fake. While at the bank, Gordon is nearly tricked and killed by the robbers, who are still in the building. They escape, and we move forward six months. Gordon is investigating the death of a man linked to the robbery. He talks to Batman to see if he can get a lead with the Manklins, who are meant to have brokered the money stolen from the bank robber. Whilst this is happening, the head of the robbery department at Gotham employs a shadowy policeman to go undercover. After chasing bad leads, Gordon finally gets a break when a man named Hogeland tells him about an envelope a hotel is holding for him. Gordon learns from him the heist was done by cops, and when he goes to listen to a security tape recording made of the call, he finds that it has been wiped. Batman gives Gordon further information, and Jim tells him he will look into it, but that Batman does not need to do any more work on it. We meet a Manklin called Junior, who pays off a man called Thorpe in a nightclub. We then cut to a man called Shotgun throwing a man down the stairs. He arrests the man before being called in by Gordon. We also discover that Thorpe, the man who was paid off in the nightclub, is also an FBI agent 
who will be helping them. However, things start to go wrong as Gordon's lead, Hogeland, is killed. But despite this, Thorpe has a new lead. We then cut to Thorpe, who wants paying for the hit on Hogeland, but he is beaten up and told to lead the cops away from the man. Junior meets a man called Red Corona and he joins Junior's gang. At the same time, Shotgun is led into a trap by Thorpe and is made to talk about the case Gordon is running. Whilst Red Corona is crippled by Junior, who believes that he is a cop. Gordon is attacked on his way home by two men, but is saved when one of the criminals drops hot bullet shell into some oil and sets fire to himself. Shotgun escapes and heads to find Jim, who discovers Red Corona's body in his office. He thinks Batman is in the office, but it turns out to be just the blinds. And Gordon decides that there's nothing for it but to go it alone. It transpires that the man is in fact an old friend of Jim's. A man called Doherty. Junior arrives at Doherty's house in an attempt to get more money from him. When Jim shows up, a firefight ensues with Thorpe and Gordon, the only two left standing. However, Jim is saved by the undercover cop who, it transpires, was not Red Corona, but in fact the woman playing Junior's girlfriend. And the issue ends with Jim and Batman making up. Do I look like a cop? Overall, I liked this issue. I thought the storyline was quite good. It develops Gordon's character a lot. It adds to him. And we see that he is not just Batman's lackey running around cleaning up after him, but in fact able to hold his own investigations, look into crimes, and often solve crimes himself. It was also nice to see more detective work as well. And we saw a real investigation of the detective methods but also of Gotham's department as well and investigations into the corruption that is in it. However it would have been nice to see Jim Gordon not necessarily need Batman so much. He spends a lot of the issues kind of wishing that Batman was around to help him and in the end, he does turn to Batman, or tries to, but discovers that he's not there, and feel he's forced then to do it. And I'd rather have seen Jim do it on his own, and not ever require Batman to prove that he is much more of his own man. I thought the art was very good. It's a very similar style to The Dark Knight Returns, so if you like that kind of style, as I do, then you will certainly enjoy the art in this issue. Gotham felt very dark, it felt very edgy, and the places that they went to, such as bars and deserted warehouses, had that dirty, grimy feel of the underworld, which I really, really enjoyed all the way through. The action was very good, it was very clear on what was happening, it was very easy to follow and very enjoyable, and I thoroughly enjoyed the issue entirely. And I'm going to give this 3.5 out of 5 battle ranks, and recommend that if you get the opportunity to find the issues, I would pick them up. 
So the next comic that we will be reviewing is going to be Birds of Prey, Black Canary, Batgirl, which should be interesting, and hopefully a heck of a lot better than Birds of Prey Manhunt. So, thanks once again for listening, and I've been your host, John, and now I'll hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. Alright, so that was Bet Books for Beginners. Make sure you are picking up the next set of issues for the next episode. Um, in this episode, we are actually going to introduce a new thing, uh, which is very brief. Uh, we're actually going to name off some of the comics that are coming out in the next two weeks that deal with uh, the Batman universe, but aren't books that we would normally be covering. Just kind of like our replacement for DC Universe Spotlight, just so that you are checking out some of the other books that feature characters from the Batman universe. So coming out... Uh, November 7th, we have, we have DC Nation number two, which is actually a magazine in a comic form. Um, Beware the Batman is actually going to be featured in that, which is the new TV series that's set to debut in, um, 2013. So take a look at that. We also have Green Lantern number 14. Batman is set to appear in that issue. Legends of the Dark Knight number two, which is the second issue of the Digital First series combining multiple chapters of the Digital First series, Legends of the Dark Knight. The Red Hood and the Outlaws volume one is released in uh, trade form. You can take a look at that. Smallville season 11 number seven, which also features Batman appearing. That's also a Digital First series that's making its way. And then the other one that's also coming out is Swamp Thing number 14, uh, Swamp Thing actually is heading to Gotham City in the upcoming issue, um, as well as World's Finest number six, which features not only Huntress, but also Damian Wayne making an appearance in that issue as well. Uh, moving on to November 14th, uh, Amy Kami Girls featuring Batgirl is uh, coming out. First uh, published issue, uh, the second published issue of the Amy Kami Girls, but this one is the first one featuring Batgirl. And uh, this is also a digital first series that will be collected for the first time. Uh, Batman Arkham City Endgame, um, another digital first series being uh, printed, as well as Batman Arkham Unhinged number 8. Suicide Squad number 14, Harley Quinn is featured in that series. Superboy number 14, uh... Tim Drake makes an appearance in that, in that uh, issue. And then uh, Young Justice Volume 2, which uh, focuses on the... It's the second trade paperback of uh, the Young Justice series as well, releases as well. So you can definitely check those out if you're looking for some other DCU books but still want to stick within the Batman universe. Those are some titles that will be featuring some of the characters from the Batman universe. All right, so next time we'll be covering... Batwing number 14, Detective Comics number 14, Batgirl number 14, Batman number 14, and Batman and Robin number 14. So that's what you can look forward to next episode. So that is pretty much everything for this episode. I want to remind everybody to head over to the website for all the latest news related to movie, TV, merchandise, video game, and general, as well as the comics. Be sure to check out all of our other podcast feeds, including the Batman Universe specials and TVU's Bat Fans podcast uh, for new episodes released recently, um, as well as the commentaries as well. Um, in addition to that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman universe. 
You can leave comments in the comments section on the website for uh, this specific episode in relation to uh, your thoughts on some of the books that we discussed here on this episode. And, of course, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Joy. This is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Uh, adios. I hope you voted. I am not. Hello. Oh gosh, Donovan. I am not on Skype right now. Ridiculous. Please person. leave a message. It's how this happens every single time. Because <laughs> he's a ridiculous man. As we know from the last episode, Comic Con happened. Or Comic Con. Um, was that a hypothetical that you were throwing out there that somebody recolored something? You want me, you want me to send you a link? Yes, please. Okay. No, I saw, I saw that. I mean, I've seen that a couple of days ago. I saw it again today. Like, they literally, Dustin went had that, you know, little Gotham thing. And literally the, the day after, uh, he, Stephanie Brown was recolored. Because that's, that, that just adds more fuel to the fire. Because if it's just somebody dressed in a Halloween costume, why would it be? It's out of continuity, too. Yeah. And it's just, it, that's not saying we want to wait for a story to tell with her. That's saying, you know, we don't want any of this, any of this character to appear at all, in any comic. Despite the fact that, like, Batman's dressed in his pre-52 costume, and, and the story is not meant to be taken seriously. It is a character dressed as Steffi Brown Batgirl for Halloween, and you recolor that, jeez, and it's watercolor too, which is, which is, it's one thing, and it's, it's one thing to actually have it, because it's digital, colored digitally, wow. it's, or, or not digitally, but watercolored, but the, the issue is digitally, it's a lot quicker for them to kind of remove it. And Cascade's in there too, I mean, they, they didn't do anything to her, but like, you might as <laughs> It's just what does that say? To, what does that say to people when you are preventing this character from even popping up in something as you know lighthearted as that? It's just hilarious. This is a bit. This is a bit weird though because on the digital version that I have, she's got black hair, but her costume still has the purple highlights. Whereas on this, it looks like she goes from purple highlights and uh, blondish hair to black hair and a completely black costume. Yeah, I know. There's, there's, there's too much. Assist. I know the hair's colors changed, and I think that the, 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 like the, the legit, the current version now just has her as black hair, which is still useless if, you, if she's wearing the same costume. But like initially, it's like I know the the, the, the stripe that was changing her costume. It just whatever. It just makes me sad. If I cough up a lung during this, please excuse me. Oh dear, Donovan, could you please um, repeat your question? No. The second question I want to ask... Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I asked... Uh, That'll teach you to pay attention. I what, did, but he mumbled. Oh, well, I was going to hang up. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what your original thought was. Uh, was uh, uh, what was... What was the point of Batman? Like, what, 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 how, I don't know. It was like Batman's whole, you know, like like you love the darkness, you hate the lightness. Oh, that's right. Okay. Anyway, I'm done with mine. It's it's something that's it's something that's interesting. 
it's something that's interesting, but we've read it so many times. Are you s- seriously, Stella? <laughs> At the Harrowwood State Penitentiary. 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 <laughs> oh, gosh. Why is it Penitentiary. Penitentiary. Okay. Sherry. <laughs> Maybe I should say it all. Penitentiary. Just say penitentiary. Okay. Penitentiary. Um, I, I, yeah, we do need to wrap this. I just, I, I, never mind. I won't say what I was going to say because it's like a Marvel thing, but never mind. We're going to cut anyway. Excellent plot. Uh, his nose is all like Michael Jackson. He's missing one of his oh teeth. Okay, say that again. Don't say that. I like Michael Jackson, but come on. But uh, you could say he looks like he he uh, did too much crack. Oh, I could say that. But don't say yeah. You could say that. Just don't say Michael Jackson because I don't need someone to say. Have a nice day.